one of the problems which people are trying to understand is like why is the user here what kind of information need do they have what kind of intents do they have if you're looking at implicit signals if you're kind of understanding my interaction data please keep in mind what my intent was otherwise you're going to screw it up when i'm running i don't want to pause and like skip right that's very annoying to me but then skipping when i'm creating a new playlist is great it's fine once you have the intent space look at the real time interactions with behavior plus content and then map it back to the intent space and based on that then you kind of infer what to do how do we leverage it a lot of the metrics which we as a industry and community have focused on are satisfaction metrics are you engaging are you clicking are you coming back but what about detecting dissatisfaction discovery and diversity and they are different right i mean just because they are diverse doesn't mean they want to discover new content right just because you're narrow doesn't mean you want to discover less as a platform we want users to be discovering a lot more now some users have more discovery appetite some users have less so i can kind of personalize that on a per user basis that hey some users have a bigger appetite so i can start using those users to expand and grow the audiences of creators and then do this matching this matching is the best problem i love the most across different languages the content creators are different the kind of content they create is different the consumption habits are different the the behaviors of users are different the expectations of users are different so imagine like i mean it's not just one rexis you're developing like 19 different rexis systems to me one of the most attractive parts was the scale the ownership and the richness of the marketplace problems here Hello, happy new year and welcome to this new episode of Rexperts, a recommender systems experts. For today's episode, I invited Rishabh Mirotra and I'm very happy that he accepted my invitation to share and discuss his research on Rexis. Rishabh is the director of machine learning at ShareChat. Some of you might have seen and met Rishabh already at last year's Rexis, where ShareChat was also a sponsor of the conference. And in this episode, we are having many topics and I guess it will be a very, very interesting episode today. Since, of course, we are talking about what brought Rishab to Recommender Systems and about his research and in industry with two different directions on multi-stakeholder recommendations and multi-objective Rexes, user intent, user satisfaction, and how to learn this from user interactions. But of course, we are also talking about India's biggest social media platform, which is ShareChat. Rishab obtained his PhD from UCL, did an internship for Microsoft Research. He was also entrepreneurially active, founding a startup during his time of research at UCL. And in 2017, he joined Spotify. And last year, he joined ShareJet and he has published many papers at Wisdom, Rexus, DubDubDub, and many other conferences. So, Happy anniversary, Rishab, and welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Marcel. Thanks for the invite. Love this podcast. I know a lot of like people in my team and like a lot of others around the world have been listening to your podcast. Amazing set of hosts so far. Happy New Year, everyone. Super glad to be here. Looking forward to our conversation today. It's nice to have you on the show for today. And I guess uh, we have a bunch of topics that we can talk about. So I'm really looking forward to it. First and foremost, you're the best person to talk about yourself. So can you share with us, with the listeners, your personal history in research and machine learning, and especially how you became a expert? 
Right, perfect. Thanks. Uh, so, yeah, I think I started like doing my undergrad in computer science mathematics back in Bitspilani in India. And about this is like close to 15 years ago now. And around 2010 is when I interned with a company called Insideview. And that's when I started working with a PhD in NLP. And I did not know what an NLP means. I, I, for all I knew, I thought it's like neuro-linguistic programming. Apparently, it wasn't. Uh, so then we started working on some information extraction from news articles back then, about 13, 14 years ago. And that led me to uh, understanding a lot of like, research papers in the ML, NLP domain. That initially was the initial transition towards ML. What I did was I decided to kind of pursue a PhD in machine learning. Uh, at UCL, I was working on a lot of problems around user intent understanding, user personalization. And if you look at a bunch of like different task assistants or different search engines, mostly like user-facing companies, right? One of the problems which people are trying to understand is like, why is the user here? What kind of information need do they have? What kind of intents do they have? And if you look at it from a search versus non-search paradigm, right? In search, people are typing in a query and you know that, okay, this is a query. The user is explicitly telling me what I want. But then a lot of these surfaces are not about like user explicitly asking you, right? If you go to the homepage of Spotify or on ShareChat, you never tell us like, hey, this is what I want. Mm -hmm. So inferring that intent is going to be a big problem as well. But broadly, right, we're going to go into like specific details in a bit. But high level, right? I mean, trying to understand users' intents and uh, trying to kind of understand like what are the different aspects of the intent? Where are they in these intent journeys, in these task journeys? So together with my PhD supervisor, Emine Yilmaz, she's uh, currently at UCL and Amazon. Mm -hmm. So we were trying to understand that, hey, how do we formulate these tasks users have? So it's like this, right? I mean, if I have a task that I have to plan a trip to, let's say, Belgium. Mm -hmm. So I'm gonna, what I'm going to do, I'm a vegetarian. I'm going to look for vegetarian restaurants in Belgium. First of all, I need a visa. I need to book my flights. I need to book hotels. I need to find out like what are the nice places to visit. So just one high-level task will span a multiple hierarchy of subtasks. So what we were trying to do was we were trying to understand that, hey, given a bunch of query logs, which have no information about explicit task mapping, can I, in a hierarchical fashion, understand these tasks, subtask hierarchies, and then understand the user navigating across all of these? Mm -hmm. That's when I started like researching into large-scale search interaction data, especially during my time at Microsoft Research. Got a lot of uh, data from Bing and Cortana. Mm -hmm. Tried to apply like hierarchical machine learning, Bayesian optimization approaches over there. Try to understand these task structures. And then suddenly it realized, I mean, again, I got the realization that in a bunch of these user-facing companies, like if we understand a bit more about user needs, then I can do a better personalization and also recommendation. Mm -hmm. And that's where like, I started transitioning from the search domain to, like, again, like, the point of understanding task is so that I can help the user proactively better. So most of these search systems are reactive, right? You're going to type in a query, I'm going to try to understand it and then kind of give you suggestions. Mm -hmm. But then a lot of the like, proactive recommendations are that, hey, I can infer your intent and maybe proactively start providing you ads or recommendations, which are most likely going to make you solve your overall task, mm -hmm. right? One of the great phrases which me and Emine used to use that like people don't want to come to search engines, right? It's not that like you wake up, you're like, hey, I feel like typing in a query and then let me go to google.com and type in a query. It's more like I have a need, I have a task, I want to get done with that task. And that's why like, I mean, I go to a search engine, type in a query. So a bulk of my research during UCL was around task understanding, then transitioning to Spotify, wherein I was like that, hey, I mean, if I don't know the intent, can I infer the intent on the homepage, uh, maybe Later on, we're going to talk about some intent understanding and recommendations domain as well. Uh, and from intent, I was up until then entirely focused on user needs. And then like the kind of problems I faced at Spotify, I mean, luckily I was kind of facing a bunch of problems which are not entirely about users. But then like, how do we extend beyond users as well? 
So in the multi-stakeholder recommendations, which you talk about, hopefully we get to dive into detail, we start going in from the user pieces to the other stakeholder pieces and then wrap it all up that, hey, how do we do well for the platform? Mm -hmm. So how do we keep in mind the users, keep in mind the other stakeholders and do well for the platform? So that's been like an overview of the journey I've had looking at user personalization and multi-stakeholder recommendations. Okay. Yeah, so that's the high-level summary, at least. So I guess there are many different terms that we uh, can tear apart in that specific part when talking about what you did at Spotify, since there's a goal a user might be having. The goal is kind of hierarchical and tears down into different tasks. So, for example, my overall overarching goal might be have a nice, wonderful, enriching visit in Belgium where I'm intending to spend one week of my holidays. Right. And then it breaks down into several sub-goals and sub-goals that I right. try to achieve by performing certain tasks. And then to find out how to do the task correctly, I engage with a search engine where the main difference, search engine and recommender system, I, we can do them in a personalized fashion. Both rely right. on similar mechanisms, methods that we have under the hood especially when it comes to maybe to evaluation but the main thing that i get from what you have said so far is the one is much more explicit because i'm really yeah. trying to phrase my intent and put it in there even though there might still be a difference of what i phrase and what i have in my mind and in the recommender right. system um, we don't know it so explicitly so we do have to adhere to some implicit mechanisms especially by looking to the user interactions is that would that be correct Yeah, that's totally correct, right? I mean, the way I look at it is you look at search, I mean, the users explicitly typing in, there's somewhat a difference between push and pull mechanisms as well, right? That like in a, in a recommendation system, right? It's more, I mean, the user is not pulling information, right? We have to like push their information to the user, understanding their intent. Mm -hmm. So one is the big difference between explicit versus like implicit. Yeah. The other one is even like the task space. Yeah. I can look at, the, if, I give, if you give me access to Google search logs, or Bing search logs, right? Or DuckDuckGo search logs. Again, no preferences, at least from me. Uh, <laughs> But if you give me access to that, I can look at the queries, I can look at what's going on and start forming these tasks hierarchies. Mm -hmm. That this is like what users do in a session, across sessions. Some of these tasks are like really small. User maybe spend like a few sessions with them mm -hmm. and they're done. Some of these tasks like planning a wedding, moving a house, buying a new house, all of that, right? They, they spend over like months on an end. So some of these tasks like, I, I can look at, put the queries in the sessions in a, in a time frame, in a time series and then understand what's going mm -hmm. on. But if I'm looking at a lot of these like non-search surfaces, right? I mean, Spotify, Pinterest, they all have search, search specific. But it plays a minor role there, no? Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, like, I mean, only a subset of users will go to search on the homepage where the bulk of interactions are coming in. You're like that, hey, I don't, I don't even know what the space of intent is like. Mm -hmm. Because, right, I mean, like, you'll have to do a lot of groundwork, a lot of studies to even find, like, what are users using my app for? Mm -hmm. Not just Spotify, not just Pinterest, not just ShareChat, all of this, right? Yeah. Because this is where, like, I mean, I got exposed to a lot of like, user research in combination with, like, qualitative and quantitative studies. So I think, like, Fernando Diaz at Spotify, when he was there, he started kind of advocating for a lot of mixed methods approaches of doing the entire holistic project, mm -hmm. which is that don't just develop an ML mm -hmm. model, do the user research, get these insights, use the qualitative data to understand, like, maybe do some surveys, get some large-scale data in, and then combine it with qualitative, quantitative mechanisms, and then large-scale ML mm -hmm. models. Essentially, right, I mean, even identifying the intents, which is one of the problems we kind of discussed in one of the WWW papers, I mean, the web conference papers in 2019, which is how do you extract intents? 
And once you know the intent, then I can do a lot of like evaluation. I can do intent level personalization, even in my current company, right? I mean, at ShareChat, we have a lot of like in-session personalization modules, which has given us some decent gains. Mm -hmm. I can only do in-session personalization when I understand what's going on in this session. Yeah. And if you look at TikTok, right? I mean, TikTok and Instagram Reels and ShareChat, hopefully we, a lot of these short video apps, they're doing really well on like real-time intent understanding. Mm -hmm. Right, that what is going on in this session and can I look at your recent feedback and then like suggest you more of that versus not do other content. So basically, I mean, there's a lot of work on in-session personalization, intent understanding and leveraging mm -hmm. intent. So when I look at the intent problem, right, part A is about like even defining the intent space. Part B is about identifying the intent. Part C is about using and leveraging the intent to do better recommendations. And part D to me is about like using intent for better evaluation. Mm -hmm. I want to take a step back first and ask you about your career decisions so far. So if you if you right. agree, I have seen something interesting that you did an internship at uh, Goldman Sachs before. I see basically two points there. So the first one was, why did you change gears or where was that point that you said, okay, I want to pursue a PhD. And uh, right. within the PhD where you were working on things relevant for Rexus, but mainly driven by search, how and why did you change years from more search focus to more recommender systems focus. So maybe these two points, why and how did you engage yeah. in the PhD? And the second letter one, how did you transition from your PhD? So from more search orientation to Rexus orientation? Yeah, thanks. These are great questions. Yeah, so I think like, I mean, when I when I did my, finished my undergrad, right, I, on my job hunt, I looked at a bunch of different offers, mm -hmm. decided to go join Goldman Sachs. I was still interviewing for my PhDs. The decisions mm -hmm. were still getting made. The decision to do a PhD was already set in stone before joining Goldman Sachs. I mean, during joining Goldman Sachs, because I think the interview process for a bunch of US universities and UK universities are different. So, I mean, I had a few offers from the US universities. The UK university interviews were still going on. Mm -hmm. I actually met my supervisor at CIR. <laughs> So as an undergrad, I had a paper at Sigai oh, okay. I went there and uh, I actually met m for the first time in real life. That's when I actually did my PhD interviews as well. Mm -hmm. uh, a couple of them, I mean, in, in addition to all the things which had happened online. Mm -hmm. And then decided, hey, this is like a really nice fit and let's do it. Uh, but then coming back to the Goldman Sachs story, right? I spent like close to six to seven months at Goldman as a full-time analyst. Mm -hmm. And there I was working with like uh, large-scale data, but like financial mm -hmm. data. And a lot of, like data related problems, which is like just kind of sanity of data, data correctness, and like the data pipelines, all of that. Because again, like they're also like outlier detection. Suddenly, if if suddenly one of the data providers you have, there is some error in the data which like you pass on. If you're not detecting it well, then a lot of downstream business decisions which are very high in revenue and financial impact gets made based on wrong data, and that's going to be like pretty bad for the company. Yeah. Again. 10 years down the line, I'm still dealing with the same problems here because, again, like the data correctness in the ML world, <laughs> model observability, data observability, that's a big piece which my current team is also looking into. During my time at Goldman, right, I mean, one, first of all, I really encourage everybody to just go spend some time in the industry, mm -hmm. like either through internships or through full-time jobs before you go do a PhD mm -hmm. or even as, as a postdoc. I mean, again, you, you, you've had one of these guests on your podcast, I mean, who was a postdoc at Amazon and like he's recently joined my team all the <laughs> But yeah, I think like one of the great benefits I've seen is that during your undergrad, during your PhD, before your PhD, during your postdoc, the more time you spend in the industry, you face a lot of these amazing real world challenges, mm -hmm. which means that you don't have to go back to your PhD and invent a new problem. Mm -hmm. Like just, just so that you can do your research. There's far more, I mean, I, I wouldn't say far more, but a lot of like really interesting, really hard problems, which a lot of current day industrial people are facing. Mm -hmm. And 
we need like a again like we've had this nice collaboration between academia and research for a long time but more important than ever i mean the academia needs a lot of inputs from industry and industry needs a lot of dedicated sincere time spent on a problem going deep from the academy essentially yeah yeah so, so some kind of uh fruitful mutual exchange that allows both to work on more relevant and impactful problems then yes yes exactly and i, I think like when, when we talk about the course if we do at this uh in, in, in the next one hour or something like one of the reasons i, I started doing one of the courses was mm -hmm. also because i was seeing a gap between like the students coming into my yeah. team in general versus what's being taught in the universities right now so if there's a gap there then the industry can come in and fill mm -hmm. in but coming back right i mean I spent a lot of time during my phd doing multiple internships Uh, again, like I had a learning that should, should, I mean, I went to Microsoft research like four times in like two years. <laughs> should I have gone to like other university, other, other industries, other companies to do internships or like just go back? I decided to go back there because again, like I had a great understanding of the problem domains, great understanding of the data, great relationship with like teams in India, teams in London, in New York, Bellevue, Beijing. So again, like, I mean, th there were instances wherein I, I knew exactly what data is where, which team mm -hmm, is developing mm -hmm. it because I spent a lot of time even in the internships, right? So the point is, A lot of my PhD work during my PhD at UCL was guided by the real-world problems which search engines and digital assistants are facing. Mm -hmm. And not just that, right? I mean, at the same time, if you're understanding task, then Alexa skills was starting to become famous and popular mm -hmm. in 2014, 2015. And then you start realizing, I mean, that's when the transition to search and recommendation started happening for me. That in search, if I'm doing spending my PhD hours understanding search task, But then I see a mapping that, hey, once you have these tasks, WikiHow is a great example, right? I mean, you go to a, a website, WikiHow, it tells you how to solve some of these tasks with a step-by-step -step point and plan. And then like Alexa task, I had a, a few conversations with the people at Amazon and Alexa developing that EVI technology in, in Cambridge, right? I think mm -hmm. that's the startup which Amazon acquired to bootstrap the knowledge base around that. Uh, it's based in Cambridge, like a few couple of hours drive from here. But you start seeing that even Alexa, Cortana, and all these other conversational agents are starting to kind of develop that task understanding, mm -hmm. and not just in a search domain, but also in a recommendation domain and all. So that's when I started realizing the overlap between search and recommendations, especially from a personalization perspective. And then in around 2016, 2017, towards the end, I really wanted to bridge the search and recommendations community by solving this task leveraging problem. Mm -hmm. That once I have the task understanding, then I can use it for better search results ranking, but also a lot of better proactive recommendations. That if I know that, like, let's say you've gotten a visa to like Shenzhen area, right, in Belgium. Now I know you're going to make a visit. If I know you're going to make a visit, maybe two months down the line, I can recommend you right away hotels yeah. or restaurants or other things or like even places to visit, all of these, right? So that means way well in advance. Two months before you actually make the trip, I have an understanding of what you might end up doing. Mm -hmm. And that's when a lot of like ads can start getting placed, a lot of like other recommendations, which are really useful to me, right? Maybe there is a fair going on. Maybe there's a tech talk yeah. happening yeah. in Belgium when you're visiting and I have no clue. But then you tell me that, hey, you know what? There's an amazing event. You might just want to hop in there. So these are all great, very useful information to be given to users. But this is a recommendation problem, mm -hmm. not a search problem. I'm not searching for it. And then, I mean, I realized that, I mean, this is true even right now, right? You, you look at, again, this is my personal statement, not my employers or anybody's, but I think like recommendations is one of the most like trillion dollar ML models in production at companies. Mm -hmm. 
at Twitter, right? I mean, on Twitter, you don't see a lot of like Rexus people making big noises. You see a lot of like activity going on from the RL world, from the NLP world. Or maybe that's just my limited Twitter interactions. I would definitely agree. It's far more implicit and quite bigger than you would say than looking from that more explicit computer vision or NLP type of uh, certain right. things because it, it's kind of so embedded in so many different systems and so many different exactly. industries to say. Right. And, and, and therefore, due to its implicity, I guess you'd are far more underestimating its effect and how integrated it is in several systems. Exactly, exactly. I think if you really sort by the amount of actual money mm -hmm. in the industry being used, being made from ML applications, I think recommendations would come at the top yeah, or yeah. if not the top, right? But then that's not the current perception of like, I mean, like how many TechCrunch articles have been on recommendations versus like computer vision and other problems, right? <laughs> RL, like Atari games. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah. I'm pretty sure all of these problems are important. But as a community, I do feel like, hey, maybe we're not kind of being as talkative in the external world about recommendations. And it is really at the top two, mm -hmm. right? And last year, I mean, when, when Facebook and Meta was going through their transformation, like Zuckerberg explicitly called out that recommendations on Reels is going to be the one of the top priorities for the company. Mm -hmm. So then that means like now people are realizing the, how important and big of a problem recommendations is and like putting a lot of like applied machine learning focus on that. At least visibly. I mean, for sure, like Google and a lot of other Netflix, Spotify, they've been yeah, doing it for yeah, yeah. a decade now. But I think it's getting there in terms of the wider uh, visibility. Actually, it's somehow also integrating with uh, the stuff that comes from all the other, I would say, application areas of uh, machine learning. Right. Yes. Yeah? So, of course, we are borrowing a lot also from computer vision because we need rich content, yes. content that is not only right. represented in terms of, hey, this is the description of a certain uh, video or something like that, or this is the name of the creator, or these are the text or categories, but we also want to understand the content. So, for example, running some computer visions across it to kind of detect the mood of certain themes or it's extract the most representative images or something like that. Right. And the same, I guess, goes also for NLP. I mean, I assume heavily that you are using also NLP models to enrich uh, the information that you have about the items that you are recommending and also to do richer uh, recommendations. But it's somehow that recommender systems kind of integrates all of these things. So it's much more It, it, it uses other areas results and also sometimes the methods. So, I mean, in terms of the methods, NLP and Rexus are also borrowing from, from similar methods to evaluate or something like that, right? Absolutely, yes. I think like, I mean, we entirely majorly rely on computer vision content and signing, right? I mean, in the social media domain, mm -hmm. a lot of user-generated content gets played out. And then like to make the initial recommendation, I have to leverage a lot of like computer vision understanding to understand my content so I can recommend it. But just on this note, right? It's not just about leveraging and contributing back, but also it's about pushing the frontiers mm -hmm. because you have to make recommendations across like a hundred million item set within like hundred milliseconds. Mm -hmm. And there has been like repeated studies done that e even like a 10 millisecond, 20 millisecond lag in recommendations does have an impact on the revenue you're making on the ad side or the latencies or the even retention yeah. which users have on your app, yeah. right? So then that means from an applied machine learning perspective, right? At least on the ML infra front, I mean, that's why like you have NVIDIA Merlin, right? I mean, like amazing set of great mm -hmm. talent and like pushing the boundaries on what's possible. A lot of collaborations we do with the NVIDIA people, with like the Google TPU teams, mm -hmm. because if you have to serve recommendations within 100 milliseconds, then on the ML infra piece to, to make these large scale models work in production at the latencies, which a lot of these like social media companies and apps have, that means like, you're asking a lot of hard questions to the ML community mm -hmm. back. That, hey, I mean, we have these problems, so can we kind of work together and develop solutions? So I think there's a nice intersection going on across multiple sub things and yeah. then hopefully like yeah. 
making all of it going towards making the users experience a lot more better now i get a better understanding of yeah what you mentioned by tasks and also how it interleaves with recommender systems and search 2017 you were almost at the end of your phd and i guess there uh, must have been some companies reaching out to you or you reaching out to them you wanted to take what you have been doing research on uh, into a more industrial context of course you did the uh, internships at uh, microsoft research where you interacted more with search-based systems and now you wanted to transition more to the recommender-based systems and you also mentioned that they were quite more widespread but more silently to say uh, i mean um you were referring to that search versus recommendation example and there is that great figure i guess by netflix it's already a couple of years ago where they claimed that 80 percent of all video or content consumption at netflix is triggered by recommendations and only the 20 percent uh, share of the cake is actually triggered by search so which already says okay recommendation plays a much greater role there so You decided to engage right. in the larger piece of the personalization cake. Right. So why Spotify right. and uh, what was kind of jumpstarting your research? Yeah, great. I think, uh, yeah, I, I mean, again, like Spotify is one of those companies that's an app. I've been using that app since like 2011. <laughs> one of the first apps I used to pay as a student back then, right? <laughs> uh, back in India, like in 2011, when I wasn't making any money, but then still uh, using my parents' funds to get through my education. Then, I mean, I, I, I loved Spotify as a mm -hmm. user. Uh, so again, like, as you mentioned, like towards the end of the PhD, you've done a few internships, you do have some offers, you do reach out to a bunch of companies, all of that happened. But, uh, one of the great things about Spotify back then was the establishment of the research team and like a bit more ownership, a bit more like independence on like, how do you shape the research charter? Mm -hmm. So I interned with Fernando Diaz at Microsoft research, and we had a nice paper on auditing search engines for differential performance. Mm -hmm. That's a very nice paper, which I like, uh, but we've really gone into detail about Can you audit uh, systems for fairness across demographics and other aspects? And I loved working with Fernando. He moved to uh, Spotify to head the research, uh, establish the research division there, head it. That's when he started kind of a lot of interactions there mm -hmm. on that front. And actually, Sigaya 2017 in Tokyo. Actually, maybe maybe I've had a nice history with Sigaya. I started my PhD, did the interviews at Sigaya 2013 in, in Dublin. <laughs> and then Sigaya 2017 in Tokyo is when like uh, me and Fernando spent a lot of long hours talking about Spotify and then like me making that decision to transition. Okay, that there. should definitely be a warning to your boss. Never send Rish up to Sigaya, right? <laughs> Or maybe I replicate the process and like get a lot of other people interested to join this <laughs> at now. So another reason to kind of fund those uh, conferences from, from the industry perspective. Again, right, I think like in terms of having the impact in the industry, And where Spotify was, there's a lot of like great recommendations already baked into the product, but also a lot of foundational understanding to be developed, a lot of like nice ML models to be developed, a lot of like foundational research to be mm -hmm. done on user understanding and personalization, a bunch of these problems. So the, one of the decisions to join Spotify was also to start influencing the research roadmap, especially mm -hmm. if, you, if you're joining like Microsoft Research, right? MSR has existed for like more than a decade mm -hmm. now, right? I mean, more than perhaps. And a lot of like established work culture, established like, protocols, processes in there. Mm -hmm. But then if you join a company slightly early on, at least that's been my personal take, yeah. you get to, regardless of whether you're joining as a research scientist or a staff scientist or like a, a leader position, you, you do have an impact. Mm -hmm. And I, one of the learnings I've had, at least from my journey so far, mini journey so far has been that if you're stepping into a world wherein you can have an impact and kind of shape how things happen in the industry, in the company, 
then that kind of enables you to grow in like various dimensions, right? Not just on the technical and research and ML front, but also in terms of how do you shape the culture in the team? How do you shape the work? How do you shape the impact of research in product? Yeah. Because yeah. this has been a nightmare of a problem, right? I mean, very, very few companies have been able to get it yeah. right. You spin up a research lab and they start only focusing on like nearest publications with like zero metric movement. Mm -hmm. If you look at the applied scientist, let's say at Amazon or like the supply scientists in Microsoft versus research scientists in Microsoft research, researchers, all just ML engineers, right? Mm -hmm. So you start seeing that spectrum mm -hmm. that, I mean, some of these researchers are either just MSR style researchers, wherein like you, you're not hired into a specific team, you're kind of working across, but then an applied scientist, you kind of hire into a team, you focus on some of these problems of that team mm -hmm. because your budget is given by that team, right? Now, Spotify presented this unique opportunity of tech research, which is that, hey, you join a research org, but then you work via embeds. You embed with the homepage team for like one, two, mm -hmm. three quarters, spend a year there, productionize the research, understand the problems, then you can step out, uh, do some research, yeah. find other customers, and then step in, right? That sounds for me uh, very similar to uh, what we discussed in last episode when I had Flavian Fasile uh, on the right. on the show, where we were also talking yeah, yeah. about okay, how yeah. do you organize that whole thing? So and yes. then bring those scientists, so those more research oriented people, close to the business. Let them kind right. kind of soak up with business problems, try right. to solve them right. there, but also give them the chance to kind of pull back rather to the more researchy right. side, but with their minds full of those business problems. Right, exactly. 200%. Amazing episode. I highly recommend people to go <laughs> through that because some parts of those episodes I had to like listen again. <laughs> And like look at the paper and then come back. Uh -huh. I think great discussion there. But I really like what what was getting discussed in the last episode there, right? That I mean, the embed process—you embed in the team and then step out and then embed again. Mm -hmm. But just the fact that mentally, right? You suddenly you're not like bounded by one team. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think as an ML engineer, I mean, regardless of whether by definition you are, you are or you're not, then as an IC, right? When you join far lower in the hopefully not a high hierarchy. But then like right by default, I've seen a lot of people just condition that, hey, I mean, this is my team, this is a problem. Mm -hmm. I don't care about what's going on. Yeah, yeah. Right? But then suddenly, if you're joining a broader org wherein you have the ability of stepping out, then you're going to be aware of a lot of what's going on across. Mm -hmm. Maybe mm -hmm. I mean, unintentionally, right? The biases in your mind are, hey, let me figure out what's going on. I think that high level view often gives the researchers a lot of like great ideas because even though I'm not working on that, But just because I'm aware or because I know that I can step back and maybe embed in that mm -hmm. team, then cognitively, right, I'm kind of keeping a mental tab of what's going on, what problems are they facing. And then I think as a researcher, you can start bridging them. Yeah, yeah. So if I can solve a problem which solves like actual problems for like three specific teams, then my impact as a researcher is far more, right? Yeah. And I'm able to kind of stitch together these problems. Otherwise, if you join a team, And if you don't know that, hey, you can step out, very likely you're just going to be like bounded by mm -hmm. that team. And the only interface might be a product manager or a data product manager that is kind of exactly. the gate exactly. towards the people outside, but you are never engaging with people some directly. I mean, there are also nowadays still companies that I would assume also restrict this and tell you, okay, please don't talk to people from other, go through the managers or go through the product managers or something right. like that. And I guess the way that you are describing it, that is standing in big contrast and that it would also definitely support is, is much more productive and healthy for an organization. I guess the benefit of it is also that you allow a much more a natural interchange of ideas, knowledge and expertise and skills right. and all of that because also the business people who might not be right. that exposed to machine learning, engineering, machine learning concepts, data science in general, right. recommender systems in specific, they also get into 
better, more easier interaction with you and you are able to learn from them, but they are also exactly. able to learn from you and get the data perspective uh, without right. being, yeah, I mean, what is the other opportunity to do this? Yeah, to do some presentations where almost half of the people are sleeping and... <laughs> I, I, no, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to totally right. I think like I, it does, I mean, not everybody's cut out for that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've, in my realization so far, I mean, researchers are great at solving research problems and yeah. potentially yeah. having an impact. But then, like, are you aware of all the gossip going on? <laughs> I mean, not gossip in terms of people gossip, yeah. but like ML problem gossip, yeah. Yeah. right? Where are they stuck, right? What kind of hacks are they trying? Where are they? What kind of wins they have mm -hmm. had? So, I mean, and not, and why just about your company? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I spend a lot of time on LinkedIn just looking at what other product teams or people hire, mm -hmm. right? I mean, like, if there's a staff scientist at new job opening out at one of the companies, There's going to be like a lot of text, but then there is a two sentences about like, hey, this is what exactly is this team doing. Mm -hmm. My point is I'm trying to walk away from, hey, you do that high level view in your company, but also do that in the industry. Mm -hmm. If you keep a tab of like, what are the open head, open open positions, then if you start reading them, reading through them, right, you start understanding, hey, there's a trust and safety team at Twitter or at Pinterest doing this. And there's one line of what the, what the core problem <laughs> they're solving. And then if you, again, it compounds, right? Yeah. Right away, you won't understand it. If you keep doing it for like months in a row, after a year, two years, yeah. you start having a very wide perspective in the industry of what's going on. And I think like that gives you a very nice flavor, which is very important because at Spotify, right? I mean, in the personalization mission, we had like close to five to eight percent of people in research. Mm -hmm. By definition, right? You're not going to have like a 50 like research team. We had we had to grow it over the over the years and still like a very small percentage, mm -hmm. right? Maybe a org of 500 means that you have like 20 researchers. Mm -hmm. If you have 20 researchers, they're not going to be embedding like in 20 problems, but then like they have to have a wider perspective mm -hmm. that puts a lot of pressure on these uh, research scientists to actually yeah. do a lot of extra work, right? Because only road managers and PMs uh, and pro program managers will have that like wide multi-org, multi-business unit view of problems. Mm -hmm. And this is literally what helped me pick up the marketplace problems. Because I mean, like, I mean, personalization team at Spotify doing like the recommendations on the surface, the creator org, separate org, separate reporting lines all the mm -hmm. way up, right? They are working on a set of amazing problems on the on the artist side, on the creator side, on how do we make artists successful? How do we make these labels successful? Mm -hmm. And then you're like, hey, the personalization team, the recommendations you're showing, they have a direct impact on whether these creators are able to make money mm -hmm. or they're able to get the audiences, grow their audiences, right? Yeah. So that's when I think one of the things which I intentionally tried to do well was be the bridge mm -hmm. between the personalization efforts and between the creator efforts. And the more you're doing that, the more you're aware of the problems. And maybe like a minor change here will have a major change there. And I think like one of the papers which he wrote, the first paper in this world, uh, in this world of mine at Spotify was on the, the balancing between user and artist goals. Yeah, right? yeah. And that's that's kind of laid out that effort. Uh, but yeah, that's that's been what my journey at Spotify has been. A very nice handover and brings us to, to some of the more research topics that we definitely want to talk about that you performed at Spotify. And just to summarize, and then please correct me there. So for me, it sounds like Spotify just as an organization is what you were attracted very much to from an organizational or cultural point of view. That's somehow what I what I, what I get from, from what you are saying, where you just said, okay, I'm exposed to the business, but I can still be a researcher and right. conduct research in a, in a, in a business system being embedded there and then of course you get more feeling of uh, what your impact is actually and and how much official accountability and official headache do you have yeah right? yeah and that that's actually led to my last year transition from a staff scientist to a staff engineer yeah. 
that like as a researcher where you're still like embedding you still like do do you give like 100% accountability or researcher who might embed out versus mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. so then i finally decided that hey i really want to own this surface mm-hmm. and have like like pro- like production metric accountability and that finally led me to transition away from the research org to the engineering mm-hmm. org own the production graphics so that i can live and die with the my my decisions right yeah. and the metric accountability becomes yours and you start taking on more serious roles in actual production systems right maybe slightly stepping back from just the fact of doing research but also like i mean making sure that like you're prioritizing even like other solutions which may not be as research worthy at the time uh but then you're kind of tackling these problems which directly led me to the search mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because again like i wasn't i was part of the home team working embedded with them then working with the sets team on multi objective recommendations transition as a staff engineer to the sets platform team there and then at sharechat uh, my org owns the production traffic on sharechat mm-hmm. so that's been like other journey as a researcher if you're not owning production metrics then as a staff engineer as a core i see there you have production yeah Uh, traffic responsibilities yeah. right and that led me to the role at sharechat as well when oh, like okay. my team entirely owns the product stack for for sharechat app Yeah, you already brought up the term marketplace. So most of the people won't directly associate Spotify with a marketplace because they would rather yeah. associate from a user point of view Spotify with music streaming, um nowadays also podcast streaming that has become very popular throughout Spotify. In which kind is Spotify a marketplace and what are the participants of that marketplace and what are their goals? I'm going to talk about this like not purely in the Spotify dimension because I think this broadly applies to a lot of other yeah, companies. Yeah. And if anything, right over the last five years, I've been trying to view every of these companies as like, hey, there's a marketplace from here. There's a multi-stakeholder balancing problem in there. So when I say marketplace, there are like multiple components, multiple stakeholders. And at Spotify, the stakeholders would be the user primarily. Mm-hmm. You'll have the artist, you'll have the labels, you have different contract as platform, and then you have the platform itself, mm-hmm. right? And this is not just Spotify. If you look at Netflix, Netflix has a bunch of Uh, again like user needs but also like you you're spending money on kind of uh, getting shows on your platform yep. right uh what that means is like even amazon prime video right they would kind of dedicate some budget for like growing the number of series number of hindi series we have in india mm-hmm. right and then like again like if you if you have to make that decision you have to look at like which actors or which producers do i sign up for mm-hmm. there's always a limited budget yep. spotify is doing that for like the the podcast host right that hey can i make should i be making joe rogan an exclusive uh, partner mm-hmm. with us and like if i'm paying x dollars why x dollars why not x minus 20 why not x plus mm-hmm. 20 right same on sharechat or on tiktok right i mean you, there's a bunch of creators you're focusing on you want to make them successful and you want to kind of provide them the support but then why these creators and how much support do you want to give them same on delivery right in the uk we have delivery uber eats like again like if i onboard a bunch of other other restaurants and delivery partners then i get some better value mm-hmm. but then if i'm only showing a small set of restaurants to users all the other restaurants are not making more money today so suddenly you start realizing that the economic implication of your recommendation model design is huge in the society mm-hmm. if i'm uber eats right i mean or any of these like zomato delivery all of these apps we have swiggy back in india on that if i start showing one restaurant less and less on the home page of people then that restaurant earns less money today yeah 
so the and again right i mean is the recommendations community aware of the economic implications on the society based on some of your model choices or some parameters somewhere in the balancing algorithm which is kind of really screwing up somebody's like earning potential so i think like when when i started looking at this from this lens then i'm like hey a bunch of the, everybody is like even on amazon or e-commerce sites right you are doing some sort of a heuristic re-ranking at the end there's a sponsored ad there there's a sponsored <laughs> search item there so when you look at it then almost all of these companies are favoring some results or the other for some reason or the other either the platform makes more money or you're kind of growing that audience or you're growing that creator or you're growing that part of the business just to clarify there when you mention heuristic re-ranking it's like in the first place i optimize for user satisfaction let's just put that in the room without right. detailing too much right now what user satisfaction right. means in specific yeah. so this is the first thing that you do and then you do some re-ranking according to other stakeholders interests so you are somehow not doing yeah. it in one step modeling both objectives and optimizing for them jointly but successively and this is somehow suboptimal or what would you claim yeah, yeah. I, i would say like you just kind of have a slot right mm -hmm. that i mean on the the third slot in my ranking is like a sponsored injection mm -hmm. uh and like again i mean and that has nothing to to do with like the rest of the user feed mm -hmm. right there's a team it's like hey i want to and again that would change today i mean growth team is using it tomorrow maybe the podcast growth team is using it like day after tomorrow somebody else is using it and they have a slot in the feed wherein you can insert it mm -hmm. right uh, that's a bare minimum you would do and that's what most people start end up doing anyway uh, i think the point i've been trying to convey is that hey you sh you can think about this problem from a ground sir perspective mm -hmm. and start designing i mean start designing the entire rex stack for marketplace because again If you look at the candidate generator, right? Hopefully, we'll get to that discussion of. I mean, this is a Rexpert podcast. Yes, so people should be aware of candidate generation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you have the corpus, you have the candidate generators, you have the ranker. Corpus is like hundred million. Candidate generator gives you a few thousand. Ranker ranks these mm -hmm. thousand. So in the candidate generation phase, right? If I'm not picking up tail creators in the thousand I'm giving to the ranker, mm -hmm. there is no amount of re-ranking the ranker can do, which will kind of push the tail creators up. Yeah. So then each part of the Rex stack has a huge implication on the marketplace outcomes. Right as a platform, I cannot grow my middle class creators or tail creators if the CG is not doing a good job at showing surfacing these to the ranker. So, but then, like in a in an injection or an ad hoc re-ranking, are you really solving this problem in a in a in a in a great way? Yeah. No, you're not, yeah. because you have you have not criticized or critiqued your candidate generation from that marketplace lens. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the the point I'm trying to make is even the corpus composition, right? Like if you have a corpus, let's say you have a two million fixed corpus size. Then the corpus composition of that two million is going to dictate whatever happens downstream, right? Yeah, yeah. So then there is even no chance for the candidate generator to pick up long yeah, tail items yeah, exactly. because they are not yet already included in the in the corpus, right? Yes, yes. And this is just on the like very high level surface. Mm -hmm. The moment you start thinking more, right? Now, if one of the point again, this is high level, mm -hmm. but then if I zoom in on just one point without hopefully spending ten minutes on it, but then inculcating habits. If I am recommending content. Then in a marketplace lens, right? I want to use maybe there's a strategic content which is far more monetarily useful to me as a platform. I know user doesn't like it too much right now, but then over a month, can I inculcate this habit in the user that they start liking that? Then as a platform, right, two three months down the line, that user will be will be a very active user in the marketplace mm -hmm. for me. So even from a pure user perspective, like I mean Spotify, all these apps, like I mean people have been using it for decades now. So you do get a chance to shape user trajectories in the personalization space. Mm -hmm. Now, one trajectory is far more beneficial to the marketplace and the creators and the platform than a bunch of other trajectories. As a platform, you want to be able to guide and control that journey. Yeah.
keeping in mind that the user is happy but then like again right if there is two path user is happy in either of them but then one of them is more profitable for the creators that's a healthy marketplace mm-hmm. healthier marketplace relatively right what's my point my point is again a bunch of marketplace problems but we should look at the entire access stack and then treat it from that marketplace lens and then start making interventions and adjustments all along all along yeah yeah and 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 then uh, i guess it was 2018 uh, where you wrote that paper and i quote towards a fair marketplace counterfactual evaluation of the trade off between relevance fairness and satisfaction in recommendation systems so we talked about marketplace but we haven't talked about fairness yet so how does fairness embed into that notion yeah i think i mean uh, yeah i mean that's a that's a paper which actually was my introduction to marketplace mm-hmm. in the sense that hey i'm actively working on it there's a bunch of problems so let's start we give a tutorial subsequent tutorial at kdd and rexis on these topics mm-hmm. in that paper we are looking at fairness for a creator it's a notoriously hard problem and there's like a bunch of papers maybe a few phd's to be done on just fairness mm-hmm. for uh, creators itself but at least in that paper right we are looking at if i'm recommending playlist to users then some of these playlists would be fair across let's say popularity buckets of creators some playlists are like only focused on the head creators popular popular creators some are not so then how do i kind of balance between showing the most relevant content to users which they would like versus like each of these content pieces might be more fair to creators versus less so in and in, in fairness in that regard does it mean kind of equity of exposure which is a very hard fairness goals so yeah. i mean if uh, every artist regardless of their popularity of their history of the track record would be treated equally some might also say okay that might be too hard so i mean you are hearing that that fairness term quite a lot of times and i guess we uh, should uh, soon dedicate a whole episode uh, to fairness and how to measure it and different notions of fairness but in, in that very specific kind also in the in the sense of uh, creators at spotify what does fairness translate into there yeah i mean again i, I want to officially speak on behalf of fairness at spotify for spotify yeah. but then in that paper right yeah. in the scientific definition of the paper we took which is the most politically correct way for me to at least <laughs> frame my answer uh would be that the fairness we use was the diversity across the popularity bins mm-hmm. of creators in the playlist mm-hmm. so what i can do is i can look at the playlist look at the artists in that playlist again a playlist is a bunch of tracks each track will have one or two artists and then i can pick up the main artist of that track look at the look at the set of tracks create like a popularity spectrum mm-hmm. and then quantify that, okay right? uh, that's the operational definition of fairness yeah, yeah. the overall insights we mentioned like hey i mean we don't want to tackle the problem of how do you define fairness we'll get to that in a bit why this is such a nightmare of a problem but then like regardless of how you quantify it you're going to start seeing some trade off mm-hmm. mm-hmm. so one of the things we did was we plotted on the x comma y axis like on the x axis you have relevance on the y axis you have fairness of content mm-hmm. and then like there's nothing in the top right <laughs> what that means is like there are no playlists which are relevant and fair at the same time okay just that plot shows you that i mean we have the plot in the paper just that plot shows you it's not a easy problem mm-hmm. like there's a trade off yeah if you optimize for if you literally optimize for relevance then you're going to kind of cut down on fairness if you optimize for fairness you cut down on on relevance and metrics get impacted but this is somehow of an aggregate picture but i guess you will you will come to it because uh, that might be different from user to user right so some users might be more or less receptive to being shown more f- yeah. fair collections of songs and, and artists yeah i mean that that user level inside is like another huge dimension <laughs> altogether we had a paper at did a like a short uh, paper at Rexis yeah. 2020 talking about user propensity to some of okay. this like what's the user propensity to diversity user propensity to like consuming like non uh, fresh content mm-hmm. we we had this project at Spotify which was like consumption diet mm-hmm. that we, 
what is the consumption data of a user? Do you just want like popular content or niche content? Do you want to kind of diversify your consumption? Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the WWO papers we had with Ashton Anderson, he was a, he's a faculty member at Toronto. Uh, he was visiting Spotify research for a year, mm-hmm. like on a part-time basis. Uh, what, what we did was we did the understanding of users' consumption diversity. And we find out great evidence that some users have a very narrow consumption diversity. Mm-hmm. That means like in the space of music genres, they're only going to consume a small subset of genres and they're not open to wider. Yeah. But there are some users who are like f- far more like generalist. Mm-hmm. So we had this specialist journalist score. Specialists are people who have a very narrow horizon of consumption. Mm-hmm. Journalists are people who have a much more wider horizon of consumption. And in that paper, we saw great evidence that maybe the organic programming of these platforms are hurting users. What do you mean by organic programming? Let's see about the work, right? I mean, organic and programming. So organic is like, again, if I go to the my playlist on mm-hmm. Spotify, then this is what I okay. want. Okay. Programming is a Spotify's recommendation. Ah, I see. So essentially, we found we found differences that like maybe some users' organic consumption is more diverse mm-hmm. and their programming is less diverse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in that paper, we, we kind of identified that users who are more uh, generalist, they spend more time on the app, they're churning less, and they're converting to premium users more. What that means is we found solid evidence that if users are consuming diverse content on your platform, then they will have a much better kind of subscription kind of revenue impact and all those, right? From the from a user engagement perspective, long-term user engagement mm-hmm, perspective. Mm-hmm. And again, like very interestingly, right? At, at ShareChat itself, for the last two, three quarters, we have kind of adopted these diversification approaches on ShareChat. I mean, not just in media, not just in music, but in like short video and image consumption as well. If your consumption is like more diversified, we have very solid causal evidence that's going to increase your kind of retention on the app. Ah, okay, I see. So from a marketplace lens, right? At least if I am the marketplace platform owner, I would love my generalist users because they have a wider horizon. Yeah. So then they are more likely to interact with the tail creator. And if I have to grow the audience of a creator of an artist, then these are great users because they are generally open to more recommendations. Yeah. And I can shape their journeys. If you're a narrow user, you're not going to be much more open to me kind of playing around with that. So one one could say uh, you love your generalists because they are much more open to diverse recommendations. Right. And this leads, if you tailor to that demand, uh, which you also want to from serving the other stakeholders' demands, because if you are into much more diverse lists and if you are much more open, then it's much easier to show those users uh, also diversified sets that might be more fair with regards to content creators. And this effectively right. leads to users yeah, showing higher loyalty and showing less churn. So okay. what are you doing about the specialists? Yes. Because in one regard, you could say tailoring the specialists because they have so specific demands might be easier Right. But on the other hand side, they are much more, how to say, sensitive towards fair content, towards diverse content. Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, let me throw in another wrench in the problem here, right? <laughs> I mean, discovery and diversity, and they are different, right? I mean, just because they are diverse doesn't mean they want to discover new content. Right? Just because you're narrow doesn't mean you want to discover less. The differentiating factor between discovery and diversity is very important. So discovery is like, hey, I, I want to discover new content. Right? To me, Spotify or Apple Music is not just a music catalog. Right? I mean, it's a music catalog. I can go to any app and like get that content if I yeah. want. But if it's a discovery platform, you have to, as a platform, enable discovery uh-huh. because people are relying on you for discovering new content. Mm-hmm. 100 million music tracks on Spotify. Right? I mean, 100 million short videos on ShareChat every month. There's no way I can kind of walk through that space on my own. I need the models. I need machine mm-hmm. learning to understand mm-hmm. me and then make me discover those new things which I might like. So... 
I think like we 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 had this paper uh, at at Sikkim, which is like algorithmic balancing of familiarity, discovery, similarity, and a bunch of these mm-hmm. aspects. That's where I was getting to the consumption diet. That users love familiar music, but only familiar music doesn't cut it for me. So I want to discover new genres, new artists, new music, and then kind of then again I might still be a specialist in that new discovery mm-hmm. genre. So I think there's a there's a interaction between discovery and diversity. Okay. As a platform, we want users to be discovering a lot more. And when I was talking about ten minutes ago on habit inculcation, let's spend two minutes on this because I can I can tie it together and then present the bigger mm-hmm. picture. Please. So let's say that users have a propensity of point three five to discover. Mm-hmm. Then that means like thirty five percent times maybe they're open to discovery. Mm-hmm. Right. I want to fulfill that need. Great. But if I want to inculcate a habit, I want this point three five to go to point four. By the end of the year, to go to point four five by the end of next mm-hmm. year. Why? Because now I'm inculcating the habit of discovery in the user. This is going meta, right? This is not just recommending and fulfilling the current user appetite for discovery, but this is like inculcating the habit of discovering more. Mm-hmm. Which means that I want you to like more discoveries, want more discoveries. Why? Because then I can truly serve my marketplace prop platform in supply demand world, right? That there's a lot of creators. Fresh Finds is an amazing player that Spotify, which is dedicated to the new creators and like making their audiences grow. Mm-hmm. On these like LinkedIn, ShareChat, TikTok, audience growth for a creator is very important. So users who have a high propensity for discovery, they really kind of want to discover that content. And these are the nice users from the marketplace perspective. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now tying it back together, and this is where like the hierarchical ML problems start kind of coming out, which is I want on my platform to grow the tail creators. I want the user to drive more value. Yeah. Now, in aggregate, I want to do that. That means, like, my in aggregate, right? Some of these problems are aggregate at the platform level. That I want my overall middle class creators to be more wealthier now. If it's a very high uh, high head distribution, I want to flatten it out a bit, mm-hmm. right? That's the aggregate problem. But which users do I use for that? Now, some users have more discovery appetite. Some users have less. So I can kind of personalize that on a per user basis. That hey, some users have a bigger appetite, so I can start using those users to expand and grow the audiences of creators, and then do this matching. Mm-hmm. This matching is the best problem I love the most. <laughs> you, you spend a lot of time understanding the users' discovery, diversity, how much familiarity do they want, and how much of their consumption diet do they want over a period of time, habit inculcation, all of that, which is personalization, right? A lot of search companies, a lot of recommendation companies have done a lot on user understanding. Now there is a creator understanding. Some creator you have to retain creators as well. You again, like you don't want to kind of just. I mean, if a creator goes to your competitor, mm-hmm. uh, then like that's going to be a problem for you. So then you have to grow the audiences of the creator, give them some boost, make the platform useful, supply demand, yeah. right? Again, like in a supply demand world, you have to balance the supply and the demand and grow both for the marketplace to be healthy. So you do spend a lot of time in understanding the creators, spend a lot of time understanding the users, then you do the matching mm-hmm. at the high level. Mm-hmm. That's where the marketplace multi objective problems become far more fascinating, and this is really important, right? Because again, if you look at Spotify, just example, even Apple Music, new music is generally very costly mm-hmm. because you have to have a lot of like marketing spends. Old music is is generally cheaper for platforms, right? So then, like, if there's always a strategic content, if you look at Amazon Prime, Netflix, HBO, all of these will have some sort of their own content. Netflix originals, for example, right? So on the home page, if you're recommending your original content, then you're not paying the a lot of money to other partners. Right. Yeah. So there's always that strategic content on your app, which is going to be more revenue centric for you than others. Yeah. Yeah. But then, do users want it? Do users not want it? And then matching it all together is where a lot of like very very juicy uh, multi-objective problems lie. 
There's a lot to unpack here. This rather translates to some kind of specification of what we said before. So it's not really that only diversity would drive loyalty, but it's like successful discovery drives loyalty and successful discovery for some users stems from successful diversity or engaging in diverse sets of recommendations and for some others to allow them within some narrower right. preferences to find what they have right. already engaged with, but still be able to discover. Yes. Okay. Exactly. Okay, I see, yes. I see. Absolutely. Okay, so it makes sense for me. What I find pretty interesting in the title of that paper, and I guess that might be also a good handover to the second one where we talk about need intent. I mean, we have already talked about need and intent to a certain degree, but how that all fits together is the difference between relevance and satisfaction. So, right. um, I mean, sometimes we treat them as equal citizens in a Rexus context where we would be inclined to say what is relevant, what the user clicked, listened to, and so on and so forth, right. is also directly satisfying the user. How would you how yeah. would you separate these two terms, or why did you separate them? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think like we spent a lot of time just writing the section three definition, <laughs> right? But hey, relevance is not satisfaction. Uh -huh. I mean, just because it's relevant, what is relevant, right? I mean, the user is never explicitly telling us they are happy or not. Most of the or time, this is relevant or not. <laughs> Very often, it's just our quantified understanding of what is relevant to them or are they happy? Yeah, yeah. So essentially, right, I mean, relevant is like, hey, I mean, I have a user profile, maybe a vector for the user. And if it's like matching to their interest, our understanding of their interest, right? Our understanding of their interest may not be their interest as mm -hmm. well. So this is the best case user embedding, best case user, user understanding I have about what they mm -hmm. want. And based on the current behaviors on the app, I think this is more relevant because they have engaged with mm -hmm. this amount of content. But if you tie in together the discovery aspect we've been talking about, then hey, this is again, and part of the relevant is also not things which are familiar, but also which are like new content. Mm -hmm. So new content is going to be relevant on some other dimensions, not in terms of relevant of my based on current consumption habits. If I only currently consume three genres, the fourth new genre is not going to be relevant based on this definition. Mm -hmm. But satisfaction is more richer, right? Satisfaction is that am I getting the value? Are my utilities getting fulfilled from the platform or not? So satisfaction is a much broader, like a broader definition and like a much bigger umbrella term. That satisfaction is like, am I deriving value from the platform? And value could be like multiple things. I love familiar music, so you're recommending familiar mm -hmm. content to me, which is more relevant to my kind of profile. I love discovery. You're kind of making me discover new artists, kind of expand my taste horizons. Again, like different intents means different things to me. And again, satisfaction could also be like short term, within session, you're filling my intent versus long term. Yeah. Right? Uh, yeah. I think like you, you've discussed with your past guest, some of these like long-term satisfaction problems as well, which is a nightmare of a problem to solve anyway. Because <laughs> uh, short-term satisfaction is hard enough. Now I'm asking long-term. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What makes user come back to my app, right? And uh, and kind of reduce their churn, increase their retention, D7 retention, D14, D28, all these problems. The way we operationalize this in the paper was if we think based on the current profile, if certain content is relevant, which means that like uh, the the content cosine distances and all are like smaller. That means it's relevant to your current profile, but satisfaction is much more bigger. Satisfaction is a lot of implicit signals on time spent on the app, return rate, short term, long term, mm -hmm. all of that. Mm -hmm. right? So again, if you look at music consumption, so on music consumption, it's like, again, you might want to click on a lot of songs, save them to your playlist, come back later. Right? So this is again, if you're discovering new artists, that's great. That may be more satisfying to you than just kind of listening to five songs right now. So one of the pieces of satisfaction we, we interpreted in some different work was 
that satisfaction is again very very different for different users mm-hmm. I, i'm going to talk about the spotify piece and then the share chat piece in like 2 2 minutes each yeah, please. so on spotify right i mean one one of the things we realized that maybe skips are not as bad in general mm-hmm. like skips usually think that you are not liking content but if i want to create a playlist like today tomorrow for for next saturday i have a kind of party in my house i want to create like a nice playlist mm-hmm. i'm going to sample a lot of songs and add it to my new playlist yeah that means i'm going to skip a lot yeah just because i'm skipping a lot doesn't mean that i don't like the content right i'm just sampling the track and then adding to my playlist mm-hmm. perhaps but if i want to listen to some music right now and if i'm driving i don't want to be skipping a lot that's like a very strong dissatisfaction signal so what that means is our interpretation of these interaction signals has to be conditioned on user intent mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. again I, if i use spotify when i'm kind of going for a run i mean i should go for more runs <laughs> than i currently do but uh but yeah i mean again when i'm running i don't want to pause and like skip right that's very annoying to me but then skipping when i'm creating a new playlist is great it's mm-hmm. fine so if you're looking at implicit signals if you're kind of understanding my interaction data please keep in mind what my intent was yeah otherwise you're going to screw it up Yeah that's on like platforms like music spotify before we hand over to how you are doing this at chatchat uh, just just a couple of questions already there which might be also relevant for the chatchat case i do understand that uh, viewing satisfaction always in light of intent should be the primarily concern or should be primarily done so you should never look at satisfaction in isolation which makes the whole thing quite more complex of course because you have yeah. quite a couple of assumptions you have to interpret data you have to estimate this and that so my question is as follows how do you detect the intent of a user for example at spotify that when i'm in that scenario that you just presented where i'm trying to prepare a playlist for an upcoming party at my house that i say okay Uh, if we see you within a session at the very start of the session creating a new playlist then we directly make the switch and it's a very reliable signal for us to know oh this user is going to skip in the following session quite many times and this is not a bad signal so in the more downstream reporting of metrics and so on this won't be held against the recommendations or against uh, uh, something that we tailored to the user but if i right. somehow see that a user starts a session right off with clicking on the first item of a certain playlist and then does nothing at all then we say okay the user might be out for a run or something like that right. so right. if we now see the user skipping then this is viewed as much more negative or even as negative because then it might be i'm running and i'm just listening to songs and i'm not that picky about the songs but if i feel there's a certain song that i don't like at all right now i skip it so that i really have to pull off my smartphone uh, uh, unlock yeah. my phone and and skip the song that this is kind of much more involvement of the user and therefore much a stronger signal but then how do you identify is it really that you have this starting interactions at the very start of a session or where do you see or make the hopefully reliable assumption of what is the intent to then view the interactions in the right light to interpret the satisfaction yeah uh, great question here i think like if you refer back to like what we were talking about about 40 minutes mm-hmm. ago uh, we were talking about when you look at intent so you have four parts to the problem high level one is defining the intent bit itself mm-hmm. what are the intents right i mean like in search you can do it at easily because you have i mean relatively easily because you have query logs yeah. but then on like spotify homepage or pinterest homepage right like defining the intent space is a much harder problem mm-hmm. uh but then you have to do that 
And I mean, right. And then once you have that intent space in one of the papers, which we had, we were looking at like, how do we quantify intent space? We did a bunch of like user research, started bring, inviting people, conducted like in-person interviews, mm-hmm. extracted mm-hmm. insights. And we did some like large scale surveys, released it to like, let's say a million users. You get like close to 3% CTR on these <laughs> surveys. That's still giving you a lot of data. And then you combine it all together, vetted by the quantitative analysis, come back with like a refined set of intents, mm-hmm. like idly in hierarchy. And I think there's a nice paper from us, but also a nice paper from Pinterest in WW 2017 talking about the intent space. And there they're talking about like goal specificity and temporal aspects of mm-hmm. intents and all that. So assume that you have identified intent space and that might look like a list of maybe 10 intents, let's say, or like maybe hierarchy of like 25 intents, whatever for you. Once you have these intents, right, then the, the problem you have to do is look at, let's say, 10 minute interaction data. Again, depends, right? 10 minutes on Spotify means three songs. Yeah, yeah. Or maybe like one fifth of a podcast, but ten minutes on share chat is gonna be like what twenty videos. That's a lot of items, right? <laughs> yeah. So we're gonna get to the social media part, maybe perhaps. But again, like ten minutes on one app is five items versus like fifty items. Yeah, I see. You look at that interaction data and content data within that time span, and then if you have these intent clusters already identified, then do that mapping. Mm-hmm. So I think like you need a model which is first of all identifying the intent. That's great identifying the intent space and then like you look at the real-time user interaction data this is a combination of user behavior plus content mm-hmm. because just user behavior is not enough right because again like if you're skipping a lot of family music that's a very different skip than skipping a lot of discovery content so i have to look at the behavioral plus content mm-hmm. condition on users historic behavior patterns mm-hmm. and then use this to map to my intent space. okay okay i mean on these recommendation apps right i mean m- more likely your intent space are also latent so this is where, right? I mean, you can imagine eventually like a huge neural model, which is doing that latent intent identification. I mean, it's not going to be deterministic, right? You'll, you'll always have a distribution over intents, yeah, yeah. right? And then you use that distribution to inform the next set of recommendations you do. So I think like what I'm talking about is once you have the intent space, look at the real-time interactions with behavior plus content, and then map it back to the intent space. And based on that, then you kind of infer what to do. How do we leverage it? Okay, okay, I see. Right? First part is identify the intent space. Yeah map the user engagement with content to one of those intents mm-hmm. and then leverage it to do something else, right? Which, which is intervention. But this means that the first requirement to even engage in satisfaction estimation or prediction is always, since you need to do it tied to certain intents, to have a model, to have a mechanism at least in place that is able to reliably detect the user's intent that you then use as some input for your satisfaction estimation or prediction model. Yeah, let, let's let's dive on this last sentence mm-hmm. you mentioned, right? I mean, again, like if I'm starting my ML research or in, in a company, right, I'm not going to do all that intent assigning. Maybe I put a team together and they're also not able to grab the problem. <laughs> so when I look at satisfaction, I look at like high level, very provable metrics, mm-hmm. like time spent on the app, number of sessions you have in a week, D1 retention, D7 retention and all that. So they, they hold regardless of intent and not intent, yeah, right? Yeah. So there, there are some of these, like, again, there's a pyramid, there's a very nice tutorial from Munia, my ex-manager mm-hmm. on at KDD and on uh, user engagement metrics. Mm-hmm. And that tutorial goes into, she, she also has a book on that topic. So that goes into great detail on how do you look at metrics? How do you look at satisfaction metrics in a hierarchy in different forms? Mm-hmm. So again, platform wide, if you're coming back to my app more, you're spending more time on my app, that's great, right? I mean, that I don't have to interpret it in any light whatsoever. Yeah. But then, like, once you go from the platform level view to a more surface or session specific view, right, then I have to start looking at more of these intent aware, maybe not directly mm-hmm. on homepage, right? I want you to 
do this reach depth retention view perhaps let's look at three metrics for any home page reach depth retention mm-hmm. reach is are you actually coming to my home page using it right or are you just going to my library or somewhere else right same same on the share chat right i mean you might just go to explore or search and not use the the main feed for recommendations mm-hmm. so you're not even like coming to my surface my reach <laughs> is low yeah right but if my reach is decent then i want to optimize for depth of engagement you're coming there can i make you spend more time on this surface than mm-hmm. others right and then retention do you come back do you come back to my playlist do you come back to my surface do you come back to this specific form of like recommendation surface we have created for mm-hmm. you so you can apply it for the for the whole surface on the home page or you can apply it to a specific playlist or on on share chat we have these audio chat rooms and live like do you come back to these chat rooms or not mm-hmm. so on each surface you can have this view of like reach depth retention and then that would give you some like local metrics right and hopefully you have a measurement team which is kind of tying in these local metrics to that overall platform retention or time spent right yep. so i think like the the view of satisfaction is also more granular one last piece before i shut up at least on this front would be that it's e- again like we, right now if we talk about like retention and all these are like human defined functions which is easy but i think the industry has long done predicted ml models for mm-hmm. metrics as mm-hmm. well wherein i'm predicting whether the user was happy or not and again like at microsoft research a couple of my interns have literally went on that if you search in like wimbledon 2022 you're not going to click anything like right? because google is going to show you the results yeah. you just going to consume eh? there is zero engagement you're yeah. doing right web search has been built on user clicking is spending 30 seconds dwell time and then we think oh user is happy with my recommendation mm-hmm. results mm-hmm. right but on wimbledon 2022 i don't click at all i just get the information and i just go away so abandonment right there's a series of papers on good abandonment versus bad abandonment you type in a query you find the results you don't do anything you abandon mm-hmm. that's a good abandonment mm-hmm. you got what you want without even clicking it could have been a bad abandonment right it's again like a nice ml problem to identify so what we're getting to is that a lot of these advanced measurement practices in good companies have a bunch of predicted satisfaction metric mm-hmm. and that's what we did in the satisfaction paper as well that look understand the intent and then use it not just it right i mean you're using a bunch of other engagement signals a bunch of like whatever like you're training the model on explicit data and all that and then you're doing a prediction of whether we think the user was happy or not and this is a differentiating factor right because a lot of academic papers are going to talk about explicit metrics but a lot of industrial systems are built on predicted metrics of satisfaction mm-hmm. yeah our satisfaction model which is predicted and like i mean as an intern right i mean i would it, it blew my mind away the first time i, I saw it that hey i think these metrics were human defined now they have an ml model to get the satisfaction which is a metric which you're using for all your shipments for all your promotion budgets and all that right i mean in the industrial recommendation systems or systems people are using predicted metrics as well so all of this intent leveraging and all is easier to do in this like predicted metric world i have to think about churn prediction i mean there we classically do it because predicting the churn is kind of the inverse of happiness i could say and then right. i mean this right. could already be leveraged to not only interact when churn likelihood is already pretty high but to right. check for basically the changes in churn likelihood as evidence for decreased happiness for example yeah this is i mean i'm glad you mentioned that <laughs> i mean like hitesh and madan and my team right we we're writing a paper for sigir on fatigue So churn is like you're churning and then you're not doing anything. Fatigue is like can I detect local churn, like intention to churn essentially. Ah, right? okay. And then can I detect whether you are fatigued yeah. or not? Yeah. And based on that, we've literally like in Q2 2022, we developed a fatigue model and we were able to reduce ad loads for the user, which gave us like retention and revenue gains. <laughs> uh, so again, like I mean, like the more real time you have this fatigue detection, the more you can intervene. Maybe in a marketplace, I'm showing you a lot of sales creators, your fatigue increases. Mm-hmm. Then I know I have a signal. 
that he, I mean, let's not do it. And I think broadly, right, I mean, I've been meaning to compile a bunch of metrics on this umbrella of dissatisfaction metrics. And again, I would love it when I'm able to finish that paper, uh, which is like a lot of the metrics which we as an industry and community have focused on are satisfaction metrics. Are you engaging? Are you clicking? Are you coming back? But what about detecting dissatisfaction mm-hmm. explicitly, mm-hmm. right? John and Fadiga are the examples, but there's a lot more. It's a lot more useful for me to detect dissatisfaction rather than detect satisfaction. And I mean, coming from a quantitative background, you are quite well aware of regret minimization. So why not focus yeah, on dissatisfaction exactly. metrics? Yeah. Yes. And then you can, I mean, and that also like gives you a nice flavor of where your ML model is not doing a good yeah. job, right? That is a lot more informative to me as an ML engineer than kind of just looking at satisfaction and like improving it. Because that doesn't tell me where my model screwed up, right? Which, I mean, same, like we, we started looking at quantile difference metrics at, at ShareChat. Like Neeti is one of the decision scientists in our team. We're looking at that if I'm doing interventions, especially in a multi-objective mm-hmm. world, then we're not just looking at what's going well, but which segment of users is really hurt the most. You're not going to get it up in your aggregate metrics view. Most of the metrics and most of these companies are aggregate. Average, you're doing statistic results and all that. But then the moment you go into that quantile difference metrics mm-hmm. world, you're looking at how are the different quantiles of user impacted. Mm-hmm. And then you detect like, hey, this might be great overall, but it's screwing up with that specific segment of users who really never cared about diversity in, in the first place. Just an example. Yeah. So I think the view of measurement is going to be very important. And I think like we've created that team of measurement sciences at ShareChat. Okay, so there's a whole team only focused on measuring things and how to measure what I want to know more about. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, experiment, I mean, like supply-side experimentation. I mean, again, like in the, in the marketplace world, creator-centric test, again, whole different problem altogether. Yeah. But yes, at Microsoft Research, I saw that Ronnie Gohavi's team on experimentation, but somebody else's team on measurement as well. Because again, in my view, it's an adversarial scenario that, I mean, as an ML engineer, I could easily game the metric. Yes. But then it should be somebody else's job to kind of fine tune and make that metric much, much yeah. better. How do we define session success yeah. rate? Now, as an ML engineer, I will be paid more if I am able to improve session success rate, but I can game it. What that means is the measurement people have to be one or two steps ahead mm-hmm. of me so that I cannot game the metric and they're improving the metric one year, one quarter after the other, right? So I think in, in the ideal setup, given enough funding in any company, <laughs> you'd want to have like an ML team, but also a measurement yeah. team, which is like slightly more ahead of the ML people so that they can create better and better metrics which are harder and harder to game for the yeah. engineers. No, that makes uh, a totally sense for me. I mean, I guess the whole topic of measuring, when a measure becomes your goal, then it ceases to be a good measure yeah. and all that stuff. So yeah. therefore, I think uh, it's it, it's really great to dedicate uh, a team or certain resources. It, it must not be a team, but really to acknowledge yeah. that measuring the right things and measuring them right uh, is definitely of a big concern because you basically want to know where you are steering your ship at and uh, not uh, yeah. and, and also doing experimentation and learn from what you're doing. Yes, especially in a, in a marketplace world, yeah. right? Where I'm explicitly taking on OKRs that I'm going to make the other stakeholders a lot more happier. Yeah versus like just focusing on users, right? If I'm focusing on users, then at least my focus is on the user, right? Maybe the metrics aren't. But if explicitly I've taken goals and OKRs around, hey, I'm going to make life better for the other stakeholders, I have to do a much better job at measurement on detecting dissatisfaction because it might just be easy that you're kind of making, it could be a zero-sum game, right? That you're making the other stakeholder better at the cost of your users, which is not sustainable. Mm -hmm. So how do we deal with this? Like, uh, is it a zero-sum game? Is it not a zero-sum game? And some of the work which we did in 2019, 2020, we published the KDD paper at 2020 on, Nyanan was interning uh, with me and Monia on bandits, multi-objective mm-hmm. bandits, essentially. <clears throat> and there we showed that it's not a zero-sum yeah. game. You can make it make life better for creators and the yeah. user. And there's not a, I mean, 
if you do it well, then like it's all boards rise at one at once. So it's basically a Pareto improvement. Yes. Okay. Yes. And in the multi-objective world, right? If you're on the Pareto front, you get to dictate where on the Pareto front yeah. you are. Yeah. Do you want to lean more here or there? And then like, I mean, I think that's the measurement thinking, which is not different. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and like, and I mean, especially, right? I mean, if your current Rexis system is not as good, then it's very easy to get like win-win-win scenarios. But if your current system is like really good for users, it becomes harder and harder to get like a win-win scenario. Yeah, of course, of right? course. And that throws in the governance problem a lot mm -hmm. more, which is like the absolutely big problem in any measurement marketplace problem, which is if I have a bunch of tests, right? And I care about three stakeholders. Am I okay with like a shipping a method which is neutral on users, but then gaining on the other two? Or like maybe like a 2% gain on users, but a 7% gain on creators? Or a 3% gain on users and only a 4% gain on creators? How do I do this exchange rates? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which is an absolutely amazing problem. Yeah. I mean, look at what happens in the finance industry. I mean, people do, they don't do pairwise currency conversions. I mean, hopefully they'll end up doing now <laughs> with like the Russian ruble and like the Chinese uh, currency coming in play. But up until now, right? 1971, everything was backed with gold parity. US dollar was backed with gold and everybody was doing a pairwise with the US dollar as a central currency. Yeah. Right? But what does that mean in my recommendation platform when I have five metrics? Yeah. Do I need like a user LTV value here, which I can kind of optimize and like do every, or do I end up doing like five C2 combinations of these metrics, understand the exchange rate and then make a decision. Mm -hmm. Now this is science impacting an ML engineer's job. I run a bunch of A-B tests. I run a bunch of like offline experiment. Which one do I A-B test? Mm -hmm. Suddenly, right? Maybe if the product owner, the product director, they don't even get to make that call if the ML engineer on a team has taken some decisions. I'm not going to A-B test these three variants. Maybe that's a much better trade-off for the platform. Yeah. This is where the practical disconnect happens. As an ML engineer, unless there is a governance identified to me, right? unless you ex explicitly write down, this is what the platform governance is. I'm going to focus more on maximizing satisfaction, then keeping the creators happy or something, whatever that ordering is, and whatever that range of metric is. If you don't do that, then your ML engineer is going to have a huge bias on your product unintentionally. Yeah. Why? Because every parameter change will present a different set of trade-offs. Unintentionally, they would have taken a call to only try these three in an A-B test. And that's what's the offer presented to you to make a decision. Should I ship this versus that or mm -hmm. that? Right? So again, like just operationalizing the platform governance piece and handling multiple metrics, it's a huge nuance. I mean, I've had people and teams just quitting that, hey, as a software engineer, I don't want to deal with this nuance. Because, I mean, software engineers are more used to deterministic work. Mm -hmm. We do this, it happens. Mm -hmm. They're not used to like dealing with trade-offs and like making somebody's life better versus worse, right? Or if it's evident to everyone that there are trade-offs, and I would definitely say that these people uh, were aware that there are trade-offs at, at hand, then just make sure that you are putting figures at these trade-offs. So it's like in a binary classification problem where you are having false positives and false negatives. Right. Just make clear how costly right. this two scenarios are, and then you can come up with, for example, some, some cost-aware accuracy metric that balances them off because you basically want to minimize your cost or maximize your profit. But therefore, you need to go through, I would say, the sometimes difficult task of really saying, okay, this is how, how much it costs for me, because then you can also solve for the trade-off if you want to minimize the problem, right? Yeah, at the aggregate. At, right. at the aggregate I mean, level, It's all yeah. simple at the aggregate yeah, level. Yeah. The moment you throw in the quantile differences, then you're like, oh, shit. Like, <laughs> yeah, just that makes sense. That makes sense. At the aggregate, I can decide a governance, but then on a per quantile basis, per user basis, mm -hmm. like these trade-offs may not be as easy, right? I mean, again, like this is my request to the academic community as well, that there's a bunch of very hard exchange rate problems, governance problems, not just aggregate, but like looking at like differential impact across different users, different creators. 
and i think this this deserves a lot more attention mm-hmm. from the research community because a lot of current engineers who don't want to write papers who don't want to kind of do the state of the art work because there's still a lot of hard problems which they are blocked on they're blocked on deploying their method in production because we are not able to take a very firm call on what trade off is actually preferred Wow, okay. I mean, uh, a pretty dense, a lot of information so far, but I guess also highly interesting. And I like that uh, we did not only talk about Spotify, which is interesting enough for its own, but also that you were able to also relate all of that stuff to your current work at ShareChat. But taking this as a chance to hand over to ShareChat more explicitly, I mean, we have mentioned it now a couple of times. I mean, I would also assume that uh, a couple of the listeners are already aware of uh, ShareChat. I mean, I don't have my bottle here but i do have a bottle and uh, i also have one of your your great notebooks there and i don't want to reduce you to your great merchandise share chat has become india's biggest social media platform if i'm correctly informed can you explain to us what share chat is, is actually doing and i mean what is more interesting for our listeners how you laid out the personalized recommendations roadmap there since you joined perfect great yeah i think like uh, so sharechat is the largest content ecosystem in india in indic languages so uh, the goal over there is we have two apps one is sharechat the other one is moj so sharechat is more of a image comma video combined platform in like 19 indian languages and there's a lot of like multilinguality problems mm-hmm. and like all those which you're going to get Moj is a short video app, uh, similar to Reels, similar to TikTok, uh, and together, right? We have close to three fifty, four hundred million wow. monthly active okay. users, like close to hundred million plus creators on the app, uh, and the scale of the problems are like r- really very, very different than what I was used to. So let, let's talk more about ShareChat, right? I mean, on ShareChat we have close to let's say hundred fifty to hundred million monthly active users, fifty plus million creators, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. about like a hundred million uh, items getting generated per month. I usually like to do that. If you look at video movies apps right netflix disney plus hulu all of that right there we see maybe like 50000 movies items or maybe 80000 movie items created in the last 200 mm-hmm. years of humans creating digital <laughs> content on the yeah planet. yeah spotify we're talking about 100 million uh, music item music tracks overall in the last 150 years of digital music 200 years mm-hmm. maybe on reels on tiktok on share chat you start seeing like 100 million items per month right so the scale is very very different yeah 100 million newly created videos per month. Yeah, I mean short videos, images, uh, short videos, medium videos, long videos, all of that, right? And again, this is not just unique to ShareChat. I mean, it's very, very similar on a lot of user-generated content mm-hmm. because suddenly you're going, you're stepping into like not just professional-generated content, and that's why the creator democratization is kind of playing into it. Again, I was working on creators in the music world as well, and suddenly when I faced these problems, that holy smokes this is going to be a very interesting problem domain because <laughs> suddenly right i mean you open up the creator space to literally anybody creating any content great content crappy content like i if suddenly you start recording your fan rotating for 15 seconds and upload it i have to deal with that i have to give it right recommendations like it's successful i don't want to make it successful unless there's a niche set of uh-huh. users who are only interested in fans so there's a bunch of very very interesting nuances when you get to this mm-hmm. right but Coming back to the core point, so again, like ShareChat, the scale is amazing, the problems is amazing, and especially in the in in an Indian context, right? What what's happening with a bunch of global social media apps 
they're tailored to the US audiences and then like all the other rest of the world is like very, very like, hey, it's external others. Mm-hmm. You can optimize your models on the US market. Maybe like once you have a dedicated team as for you start kind of doing that for them. But if you look at the internet, right? So language is the geographic boundary on the internet. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because again, like if you if you start zooming in, we are kind of compiling results to maybe submit to ICWSM perhaps, but across different languages, the content creators are different. The kind of content they create is different. The consumption habits are mm-hmm. different. The, the behaviors of users are different. The expectations of users mm-hmm. are different. So imagine like, I mean, it's not just one Rexis you're developing, like 19 different Rexis systems all have to kind of play out well. And and we, we see a huge difference between like Hindi and Tamil. Like Tamil users will consume a lot of like long form videos. Mm-hmm. Maybe Hindi users mm-hmm. won't. Maybe creators won't create it. Maybe the, the kind of categories, the kind of content they're creating, even the phones they have. Again, like the what, what's prominent in one part of India is not going to be prominent in the other part of India. There's a lot of heterogeneity mm-hmm. across languages and we have to tackle it mm-hmm. all. So it's, it's very, very interesting uh, on many, many dimensions. To me, one of the most attractive parts was the scale, the ownership, and the richness of the marketplace problems here. Okay. Because, I mean, I was used to like the stable content space in my like experience so far, wherein like I could develop a nice track embedding, live with it, and it's going to be there for me. Here, I get like 15% content new every day. And the shelf life of a content is maybe two, three hours. And by shelf life, you mean the moment where it is not really reasonable to recommend it anymore or where people just stop interacting? If you go to like a cricket World Cup, right? I mean, a T20 World Cup or any of these, like wherein you have two matches a day, yeah. right? Uh, so each match goes on for two hours. Within like six hours, you have both the matches yes. done. Now, by the time in your traditional recommendation platform, user kind of generates the content, you give it some views, get some representations, mm-hmm. get it to your CGs, get it to the ranker, the match is over, new match is going on. I am not interested in the older scores yeah, now. Yeah. Again, the shelf life, I mean, what's the shelf life, life cycle of a content? I, I would assume the fan might stay for a bit longer, right? <laughs> for its special community. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, like for the niche users, yes, definitely. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's very hard to find like niche, niche users who are really interested in fans. Maybe I should spend some time digging there. <laughs> but I mean, but again, like if a famous goal from Pele, right, uh, that content is going to live far longer. The problem I'm trying to get at is there's a lot of like content lifecycle problems here, a lot of like supply demand problems here in the marketplace world. You still have to grow your creators. You still have to make the users happy. You still have to inculcate this user creator relationship, mm-hmm. all of that. Odd in a much, much more bigger uh, content creator space and the dynamic content space and on the ML in front front as well, right? Like handling this scale, the corpus here is going to be much, much bigger, much, much more dynamic, much, much more real time. Mm-hmm. And because of real time trends, you're going to have to do a lot of in-session personalization. The ML infra scale is like a lot more kind of challenging to me personally as well. So again, like we're painting a picture that all the marketplace problems, plus or more in this world yeah. is like very attractive. And that's exactly why, again, like I'm still as excited, maybe more <laughs> than when I was like about... 53 weeks ago. It's not like just one year yet. Uh, <laughs> okay, I see. Week, almost. Uh, so so, so almost. Look at, look, looking back uh, um, to that almost one year that you have uh, already spent at ChatChat as a director for machine learning, which is interesting from certain points of view since uh, it somehow implies that you are not only um, focusing on recommendation problems, but also assume on, on different machine learning models that yeah. are also stemming from computer vision, NLP. 
what was kind of the status, as far as you can talk about it, um, of recommendations at the point when you joined the company? And where did you say, okay, this is the very first thing that we should do, and this came second and third? So, how did you kind of derive a roadmap of recommendation and all that? is needed for for facilitating recommendations there yeah i mean like very honestly right i mean the i mean i had some biases coming into the mm -hmm. company within the first they were all destroyed because the the amount of ml models in production and like the sophistication of some of those like just blew me away i mean i was like hey i mean this is like another world altogether like and i've been attending rexes and kdd for like quite a few mm -hmm. years now and just that like some of these problems just didn't hit me as a consumer from the outside okay. And I think this has been my sales pitch as well to a lot of other people that, look, I mean, some of these problems are like really challenging, really hard. And I don't think like a lot of Rexis communities like focus very intentionally, unless you look at like one or two papers coming in here and there. Again, it's not as mainstream. Mm -hmm. So when I came in, right, we had some good, let's say, field of a factorization machines, model candidate generators in there, mm -hmm. multiple prediction, multitask style, recommendation models in there, some weight tuning, weight combinations going on. I came into kind of Initially, right, I was very biased towards marketplace. Mm -hmm. uh, how do we make more money? How do we make more creators happy? Uh, so we started some problems on the ad load balancing, on other like strategy content balancing. And we have had a nice journey in like a quarter and a half. We were able to develop and deploy contextual bandwidth models for ad load balancing. Mm -hmm. Again, I can give more details in a bit. And then we've kind of slowly evolved each part of the stack uh, one by one. And here, right, I mean, like if you look at the entire stack, you have to have focus on the corpus side scale the corpus, but then if the corpus is big, but you're, if this bottleneck later down, which is like candidate generates ranker, corpus improves are not going to give you great results otherwise. Mm -hmm. So again, like, I mean, starting to look, look at what does corpus look like? How do we scale the corpus on the infra side, on the look back period? Like, do you just have maybe one week look back of content? Mm -hmm. Do you look at like 14 days, 30 days, 60 days? How much, how does each of this kind of practically impact your access system? One example, right? A very unharming from the outside look. The moment you expand the look back, look back is like how long ago should the content be created for it to be live, alive on your mm -hmm. platform. If you look at, let's say, if you go from, let's say, 14 days to 30 days, now suddenly the, the content which came in in the last two weeks of the month, right, which is like close to 30 days, we don't have embeddings of them yeah. anymore, right? And I mean, the embeddings are stale, the, the embedding space has moved on. I mean, I cannot just kind of make content come alive on my platform <laughs> because again, like it's outdated. Now users are not consuming it. So then I don't have real time near about signals of user comma post, which I can use to boost up the embeddings again. Yeah. So just to bring back content from the dead, make it a live platform, this is now a nightmare of a problem to solve. But this already level. implies that we are talking about models that embed content together with behavioral signals. Because on the other hand, if oh, you would, for, for sure, example, yeah. uh, take some typical standard uh, NLP embedding model and, for example, take a transcript of what has been talked about in a certain yeah. video, then I would still assume that what I have created as an embedding one month ago should still be relevant since it's still relevant or yes. similar to the embeddings that I would create nowadays. So this, what, yes. what, what you are talking about goes somewhere for these models that use hybrid signals, so content and behavioral signals. Yeah, yeah. I mean, let's focus that for the next five minutes. So if we talk about post life cycle, mm -hmm. right, and that's been one of the big revelations for me from the outside when I joined ShareChat, is that the amount of respect we have to give to the post life cycle, mm -hmm. which is the life cycle of content on your app is much more important here. And here is why I get a post, right? I mean, like 15%, 20% of content is new every day. Mm -hmm. Now we have to make sure that some content gets some visibility, 
maybe let's give it 50 views 100 views see how it performs based on how it performs it gets like 500 views based on how it performs in 500 it gets like 1000 5000 10000 100000 a million mm-hmm. views right so there's a journey of a content yeah. at the start of the journey i have zero behavioral signals there i'm entirely rely on content understanding that i mean like what's going on in this is this a prank video is like how many gods are in the picture like what's going on right i mean uh, and again there's no text right it's entirely on understanding the semantic content of uh the image or the video okay. and again some of these like long videos short videos medium videos just just images across different categories yeah. uh but then you do have some creator signals right i mean that some creators are like really good they've had a high success rate so you have some bootstrap views equal to zero understanding of content mm-hmm. now but then you realize that the moment a post gets 50 views we've accumulated a lot of behavioral signals and they are a lot more useful to predict downstream success than just understanding content so basically content understanding for cold start items but then quickly switching over to behavioral signals as a much stronger feedback signal to tailor for the recommendations of that item yes yes and again like here you're looking at like let's say blind video quality assessment score mm-hmm. like i mean i i mean just looking at the video with zero interaction data can i predict a quality yeah. now this is a very hard problem how do you define semantic quality i mean let's say like there's a famous creator dhoni i mean hitting the six to win the world cup mm-hmm. right or like i mean let's say ronaldo hitting that goal right that video is great but then similar to the fan video right if you just pause the video before messi hits that goal that's a crappy video <laughs> i don't like it at all yeah it just wasn't me irritated now right and so how do we understand that like do we have the tools and models in place to understand the semantic quality and the perception value of a video we don't yet maybe not in industry to that extent yeah. right same like i mean a fan rotating is not as useful versus something else we i mean at least right now in production we don't have methods which are kind of giving that to us creative value of a video is very hard to quantify mm-hmm. there's a series of workshops at neurips and icmn on like machine learning for art maybe we get to quantify the creative value of content in a bit and then we can start consuming it to understand how successful one content could mm-hmm. be uh but then unless you quantify those creative value then just looking at user behavior data is going to be very very important and what that means is if i have zero views i'm relying on content and sending the moment i have 10 views i have to start using in the behavioral signals yeah. now this is where the real time update really comes into play of a, a content will get like maybe hundreds of views within like 15 minutes mm-hmm. so you don't have a lot of time to kind of sit back and like get the content evolve because by in the next 2 hours maybe the content is dead anymore already right but that means is it's not just about having embeddings but a real time update on embeddings mm-hmm. so one of the things which we have deployed in the last quarter and we are seeing like absolutely amazing wins is if you have a user id code post id you get the embeddings now can you update these embeddings in real time and by real time i mean like with each view imagine like a post yeah. right a post is getting consumed by let's say 25 people right this second mm-hmm. some of them are liking it some of them are sharing it some of them are just skipping it some of them are completing the video play now what we have to do is it's a mix of great engineering animal problems like i have to put a distributed lock in the embedding suddenly 25 events are competing to update this embedding itself yeah. i cannot have all 25 of them updated immediately okay. right if i do a batch update i wait for like 2 3 hours like get 50 interactions on this video then update i've lost the chance to personalize in these 50 journeys right and maybe the content is kind of just lost the appeal yeah so i don't want to wait in a batch update manner so we're not even talking about like 3 hour 4 hour update right i mean that's not the update cycle which we will have i mean most of these other stable content platforms will have like 24 hour mm-hmm. update of embeddings mm-hmm. so we are rather talking like seconds the, yeah we, we're talking like each engagement not even seconds right each signal yeah. 
what that means is we have an embedding we we put a distributed lock on mm-hmm. it we pick up a candidate to update the embedding mm-hmm. after that like maybe the user liked it or user 2 shared it we go back update the embedding release the distributed lock and then get give the chance to the next view next signal to update the okay, embedding okay i see i see now suddenly the embedding is updated now this is the latest update embedding which you are using for recommendation so in a bayesian manner the very first embedding that you have for an item might be your prior and now with every feedback right. that comes from a user you have the likelihood but the likelihood has always sample size 1 and is then used right. to merge with the prior in the very first case when we don't have seen any behavioral feedback towards them and then you have basically the posterior and then there comes the next event from a user what is included as signals as features so i mean okay it's embedding so it's not explicit features anymore but what is kind of the signal so right. when you say a user feedback signal is changing let's say an item yeah. embedding how is that going to change so is it like there is a user that you have Uh, kind of classified implicitly as being interested in in chess or something like that and then you see the user interacting with an item and so now that item becomes more chessy or how how, how can i think yeah. about that uh, yeah i think like i mean the topic prediction is something like whether it's a chess video or not right i can do it like even at view mm-hmm. zero because that's more about the semantic but whether this is good or not i mean the engagement signals we look at are let's say combination of like share video play comments all of them mm-hmm. right? and there's going to be some biases on each categories right some users some content is just for sharing ah, okay. some users more about like likes yeah. right same on linkedin why just look at share chat look at linkedin yeah. right on linkedin if suddenly somebody updates that hey i gave a nice tutorial at kdd here's a link people are going to share it more mm-hmm. often but then if you are changing a job that hey, i went from company a to company b people are not going to share it people are like going to like and comment congratulations that's right? a good example yeah <laughs> there is a very different heterogeneity of signals yeah. and the success rate will be different like some content are more share worthy some content are more like worthy some yeah. content are more like engagement on comment okay. some some are like more video placing like video play complete and all right so and this becomes this makes it a lot more harder for us to understand satisfaction and again we're talking about satisfaction in like half an hour ago now imagine like user spending 5 minutes on share chat there could be a bunch of very nuanced problems i'll give you an example if you're spending 5 minutes in a session on share chat you can consume one 5 minute video or you can consume 10 30 second videos right or you can consume five 1 minute mm-hmm. videos or you can consume 40 mm-hmm. minutes awesome combination right so what that means is the content heterogeneity in terms of short video short video what is the success signal do you watch like 90% short yeah. videos for a 20 second video that are 18 seconds yeah. for a 3 minute video that's close to like whatever like a uh, 3 for a 5 minute video is 270 seconds right so the definition of success is hard to define mm-hmm. because a 90% success rate is going to bias your overall content on the app towards shorter content why because shorter content have a better chance of hitting that 90% threshold of video consumption mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. longer sense, content yeah. are going to take harder to get to that 90% but still if you spend a minute which is one third maybe that's sufficient yeah. enough so again the the nuances which a heterogeneous content space throws at you not just in the real time update of embedding not just in the engineering ml challenges but also in just purely understanding the value and debiasing it based on content based on engagement mm-hmm. signals it's a gold mine of a problem altogether <laughs> and uh, i mean now imagine defining session success rate for such an app right wherein you have such heterogeneity in engagement signals such heterogeneity in user needs in the morning i come in i get a content i share it on my whatsapp group and i'm happy 
right in the evening i come in and i want to watch a video play and and watch long videos short videos and all of mm-hmm. that so there's a again like a bunch of very very hard at least it's still unsolved by us uh problems on like understanding engagement understanding content heterogeneity and then making it all work in the recommendation mm-hmm. system altogether mm-hmm. so that means for me to answering the the question of how that has changed within the last year that i would say uh yeah. definitely about the scalability from what i hear you saying that due to the requirements to the freshness of content being recommended and the uh, high amount of of videos that are created uh, constantly uh, you need to be or have really scalable models that that do that very instantaneously if you want to update a video embedding after basically each uh, behavioral feedback you got from a single user right thinking about that how does that item embedding change so what are the underlying latent variables that we are talking about then this is also not exclusively but rather Uh, in some dimension about whether it's a rather shareable or a likable or a savable item for for certain users um, and not really about the content because the content you have already understood at the very beginning since you have, I assume, powerful content understanding models in, in place there. Yeah, I think like coming back to the core question you asked, right, which is like what, what has changed in the last mm-hmm. one year? I mean, I'm hoping... <laughs> my 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 ceo and my boss gets to look at this content and maybe judge me based on that but i i would say that like it's about some bit of new models some bit of new problems some bit of new measurement mm-hmm. right and let's take some examples we've just talked about the new measurement yeah. like signals which are more engaging versus like heterogeneity that's like on the like going deeper on the measurement mm-hmm. aspects uh going deeper on the new models problem like everybody is showing ads right and there you how do you decide how many ads mm-hmm. to show so we started with like a fixed slots like 3.7 in your feed of 10 we show these ads right and that's typically what the default solution yeah. is we had a very nice like quarter and a lo- quarter and a half long journey we started with like hey this is on the category of like new models to existing solutions mm-hmm. uh in in the last one year right just one example that let's say like how many ads do you show on the feed we had like fixed slots and then we were like hey let's personalize it so we developed like a user fatigue model not churn churn is long term user fatigue which is like very real time are you getting fatigued why do i show like same number of ads to everybody mm-hmm. let's kind of personalize it again don't do anything for core users who are like in the middle but some users who are extremely unhappy extremely happy you can start changing mm-hmm. that as a first step journey right users who are extremely unhappy start showing less ads users who are happy maybe you can afford to show one more yeah. ad. maybe maybe not right so then you walked away from a fixed slots fixed number of ads then at least like a v1 of personalized solution mm-hmm. just like in a few weeks you've done some experiments and and deployed this model development model do then all that but then why just stop here why just fatigue look at a lot of other signals look at how good is my feed if the feed is not good maybe the user might turn away anyway mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so go upstream and see okay what what has been leading to fatigue in the first place not only detect fatigue but why is yes. the user fatiguing yeah and and not just fatigue based right fatigue would be then one parameter yeah. then we walk towards like a contextual bandit formulation mm-hmm. problem because there's no we cannot treat it as like hey predict how many ads to show because the moment you predict like 2 3 4 then you have to place it if you have to throw two ads is it like 2.7 2.9 3.7 3.6 where do you show them in the feed right and at the end of the day it's about balancing retention and revenue you show more ads you earn more revenue retention goes down you show less ads retention goes up revenue goes down which comes back to the marketplace problem my anyway was interested mm-hmm. in and then we developed hey i mean let's try a banded approach it's not a prediction yeah. problem right i don't want to predict where to show them i want to maximize the multi objective reward and that's what we did we said that hey let's put a contextual bandit in place uh, the contextual bandit model is trained using rewards which is multi objective two objectives mm-hmm. 
a combination of like retention and uh, revenue revenue is simpler retention is a long term signal so how do i train a bandit model on that long term signal i can't mm-hmm. so then we look at like the the within session signals which we we can attribute retention to some local signals then put that in your reward function yeah. so again we had to deal with the like attribution problem look at short term signals which are predictive of retention get them into a reward treat it as a bandit problem contextual bandit problem define the number of arms one of the things we did was we said that hey let's put the number of arms in the bandit to be how many ads to show okay 1 2 3 4 5 6 whatever right now the bandit is optimized for that it tells you 3 now the problem is okay what do i do with this 3 i'll have to then decide whether it's 2 3 5 2 7 9 all of that right it's not an end to end solution anymore and if it doesn't work it doesn't work because the bandit did it wrong or whether i use the data to find out the slots wrong so then you're like hey let's get rid of it let's train it as an end to end bandit which is the bandit arms are not how many ads we show but the configuration of the mm-hmm. ads which is if you're showing just one so 1 2 3 4 5 6 7 if you're showing 2 2,3 2,4 2,5 2, 2, so again we ended up with a arm size of 21 and then we train a bandit which is end to end because this is deciding on where do you show the ads entirely not just how many mm-hmm. to show and then again that started giving us some great results we ended up productionizing it like in q2 itself which is like just a quarter and a half after i joined and that gave us like 2.2 2.12% retention revenue gains with like slightly retention gains as well so revenue retention both yeah. but the best part was this model was figuring out all the heuristics which you have been running that if you are a longer session maybe i can show slightly one more ad yeah right so again it's not just about like for a user but then user in the journey on the app you can start showing more and less how that that happened we started adding more real time feed level sessions signals contextual bandit model the context signals are not just everything which has happened up until today but real time right i showed you two ads you skipped a lot after that right that means hey i maybe i i should mm-hmm. and then i should i'll decrease so we started seeing like the all the other heuristics we have been running that let's show more ads later on in the feed when the user is happy and all that the bandit started emulating that all by itself mm-hmm. which was an absolutely amazing thing for me to see given the scale of the platform already i mean a single digit figures always sound a bit small but it, you have to multiply them with the large scale of the platform and then the absolute figures are yeah. i guess tremendously so therefore uh, please don't uh, send back at that point but i also really like the, the second point that you are making that you learned a lot of things that the contextual bandit found out and then could derive further steps you want to take from there right yes and i think like one of the great learnings which is like a more of a process learning for us was that don't directly jump to the bandit we never directly jump to yeah. the bandit we were like hey let's let's go in from slots to personalize slots to add a signal use that signal for production then add a bunch of heuristics which means you're adding more mm-hmm. features suddenly those features become the contextual signals i mean it's a very nice team of ml engineers product analyst and me and all together uh, the product analyst with the sd is trying a bunch of signals coming up with heuristics which are be- performing better these heuristics become part of the contextual bandit context signals of the contextual bandit model eventually So then you're not just relying on hey we're going to pick up a bandit solution and go with it mm-hmm. right because then you might just end up failing and have nothing in production mm-hmm. at all like baby steps right with the long term in plan that hey let's try one signal which you're predicting as fatigue yeah. one ml yeah. model that becomes one of the features in that large contextual signals eventually mm-hmm. right all along every week by week there's like many many tests going on with many heuristics many signals some of it i learn models some of just just random heuristics they all accumulate towards us getting and deploying the bandit mm-hmm. in production mm-hmm. right so just the fact on how we got there is a great learning for us right it's not just say we want to deploy a bandit model why because rishabh thinks it's nice to have a bandit model in production and then we pick it up we don't solve it and there's nothing yeah. right so here 
it's more like you're walking towards a better solution in very incrementally with the right heuristics and then seeing that the model is actually able to replicate all the heuristics which we could think and maybe more because me as a human i won't be able to identify all these heuristics by myself yeah. and hopefully the model learns more of it yeah. so i think it's a nice learning not just in terms of picking the right solution because this is not a prediction problem this is a reward maximization problem so bandits are better suited but also how do you operationalize getting there mm-hmm. if your goal is to just deploy a bandit and success is like do you have a bandit or not then you're going to most likely fail but then incrementally every two weeks we had like a new production method which was incrementally within like four months a contextual bandit mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so i think like great learning in terms of models in terms of problem solving on long term succession success in short term reward signals and also like the process of going about a nice uh, soft skill model and the walking from baby steps to that okay wow sounds like a lot of great works that you have already done there in the in the recent year and i guess there's more to come in the future i see that we are already talking for almost two hours <laughs> but i enjoy it because there are so many things that you're sharing and so many things that i already learned to uh, up to this point and uh, i guess that definitely qualifies to be continued in the future so uh, you are greatly invited to be i mean I guess the general invitation for a follow-up is uh, out there for you and also for all the others. But handing over uh, towards the end of the episode, um, maybe you have already listened to and know that there are a couple of questions that I used to ask each and every episode. This time I will spare one of them, which is a question for your favorite app or something like that, because I don't want to put you in the position to choose between right. something that you have been happily using for more than 10 years and uh, the solution that you are now uh, in charge of. However, I want to do something differently and put in some other questions uh, to address on a higher level to at the end of this episode, which is actually so you have elicited many challenges in the Rexel space. Uh, however, I guess nowadays there are also people that are challenged to a certain degree. So, I mean, we are somehow in the midst of an economic crisis. Right. However, I mean, we have seen the layoffs at several big tech companies in the past month. What I want to know is, what are your recommendations for people who want to get, even if they are uh, more junior or if they are more seasoned, to get into into the Rexos field or to take the time now to prepare themselves and bring them into the right position to then jumpstart their career again when more and more of the companies are switching more to hiring than firing? <laughs> yeah, thanks for the great question. I think like uh, in terms of upskilling, right? I think. The, the two learnings I have had recently is that if I expose myself to a bunch of these problems, then just the fact that I'm exposed to these problems, I face mm-hmm. them, mean that I'll have to spend brain cycles in like trying to think of a solution and then just appreciating the problem a lot more. Mm-hmm. What, man, what that means is if I'm an MLE in a team, right, I shouldn't be exposed to just the problem my team is facing, but also like overall, right? What are the other MLEs doing? What are the staff engineers solving problems? What kind of roadmaps are getting discussed? How does each of these solutions actually impact the business? And just having the general sense of what's going on in each of these companies, yeah. right? which is exactly what we were talking about, like at the start of the episode as well, high level view, right? So that you're just not like a frog in a well, but then you're aware of like what's going on otherwise. Mm-hmm. That's one. But also I think a lot of the other, like a lot of talks, a lot of podcast discussions, a lot of courses coming in from industry practitioners talking about these things on how they solve these problems, whether be it in the previous podcast episodes you have mm-hmm. had, like, I mean, talking about Critio or all of you are talking about is like causal impact work or a lot of like other uh, courses going on in the industry, uh, different, different platforms now, but like a lot of staff engineers, a lot of like practitioners are really talking about how do you do solve these problems at scale. So I think just acknowledging that there's a disconnect 
unfortunately, between what gets taught in the school versus on day one as an MLE one, what what's your expectation is, right? So bridging that gap is one of the key hallmarks, which has to be done if I'm a junior, I see, mm-hmm. right? Just because I know a lot of how some of these sequential models or like how some of these like transform models work doesn't mean that I can use it to solve a production problem. Yeah, yeah. Right? There's a lot more I mean, engineering, a lot more like metrics understanding, measurement understanding, yeah. practicalities understanding, a lot more to it, which also, I mean, the governance piece, right? It's very practical, science-driven problem, mm-hmm. which as an MLE one has to solve if he has to deploy his own ML model in production. Yeah. So I think like acknowledging that gap and then like reaching out, having those, taking those courses, that's the best bet, right? Either you talk with some of those engineers yeah. or you kind of listen to their talks and podcasts or you take up a course. I think a mix of that would be a nice nice solution in there. So shout out. Please stay on board and listen also to the upcoming and recent Rexperts episodes. Uh, just just as a, as a follow-up question to that one, um, I mean, the whole ML field has grown in complexity tremendously over the, I would say, past five to 10 years. And I keep seeing more and more of these remarks, comments, uh, especially on LinkedIn and also when exchanging with others and looking at the market is that specialist versus generalist discussion. So do you think that there will be plenty of space or enough space for generalists in the future? Or is it right to specialize on certain topics, rather become an expert, whether it might be a methodological expert or a domain expert to be successful in the future? Yeah, that's a very hard question. I mean, I, I I don't think like, I mean, if somebody has an answer to this, I would love to be in the audience and like consume the answer <laughs> and apply to my career. But I think like generally, I think it's a function of, I mean, my best take on this is it's a function of like where you are in the trajectory. Mm-hmm. I mean, at, at the start of a career in the MLE, one, two stage, right? Senior MLE, maybe you're like, you're not hired to solve like very specific problems, yeah. right? Again, solving a good problem in detail is far more useful because you're going to face a lot of these mm-hmm. challenges. And it's, it's more like a PhD, right? I mean, PhD is not just like, hey, you're an expert on this topic because you have a PhD. It's more like you have developed the skill set to persevere with the problem and dive deeper, stay with it, despite a lot of like failures mm-hmm. and then come out and get a solution. Yeah. Right? So I think to me, a PhD is more about like getting that experience versus like just kind of being good on solving one type mm-hmm. of problems, right? So as an Emily, what that means, at least at the start of my career, would be that, hey, stick to the problem, go deeper, don't context switch a lot, right? Because if you context switch a lot, then maybe you're kind of, you're learning wider, but then like you're not harnessing that brain muscles on like facing the problem, staying with it for a few weeks and then solving it, and then getting that ability to do it for any new problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, right, if you're just diving deeper into one of them and you assume that there's going to be an SDE who's going to deploy my model, there's going to be another SDE who's going to give me the features and I'm just developing model, that's not transferable at all, yeah. right? Because I'm not hiring you as a staff engineer to solve this problem for mm-hmm. me. I'm hiring you to be an independent engineer in my team And that's exactly how we've done a lot of onboarding projects that in the first month, your onboarding project is just to be very devilishly selfish and get to be an independent engineer so that if nobody is around, mm-hmm. can you get a model out in production, launch a test and make it all yeah, work, yeah. right? So I think like what that means is there, I'll rather focus on all the problems which are also not my headache, which is that if there's a data pipeline to be built and there's an airflow job to be written for that, I will do yeah. that. Like if there's a Scala pipeline on some data processing transformation, I'll yeah. do that. Like if there's a model deployment on Seldon or ML uh, TensorFlow serving, I will do that, right? What that means is getting to that minimum level of end-to-end mm-hmm. ML engineering mm-hmm. and also the database. A lot of the people, they think that, hey, there's a data scientist or a product engineer, product analyst who's going to understand my data and understand my mm-hmm. metrics. If you are doing that, you literally, that's career suicide for you as an ML mm-hmm. engineer. Mm-hmm. 
Because if you're not looking at your own metrics and your own data and finding out where it sucks, looking at where the users are unhappy, then you're not going to have the next idea. Yeah. So at least maintaining that minimum level of end-to-end engineer, full-stack ML engineer, essentially, right? Which is the data analysis, which is productionization, feature pipeline, SD work. Once you have it all, then you focus. Then you can afford to focus on one bit. First, that's the more engineering-related foundation, which is end-to-end. And then if you have that and associate it with this more independence, then you can grow into yes. a more specific area and direction. Yes. Yes. And again, I've had that journey, even within my own mini career, right? That if I have a dependency, for sure that This is high priority to me. It's not high priority for the yeah, other yeah. stakeholders. It will take me like two x more time to get yeah. it out. But, I mean, that's exactly. I mean, at, at Spotify, I took a lot of like data engineering courses all by myself mm -hmm. because I didn't want to have a dependency as an engineer, mm -hmm. as a scientist, mm -hmm. right? Just because I'm a scientist, somebody has to spend their sprint cycles in helping me out. That's never going to happen. If it happens, it's going to happen one month from now. I don't want to wait for a month. <laughs> so just on a selfish level, mm -hmm. right? If you are able to kind of unblock yourself by reducing dependencies. Yeah and get something out in production, then you are far more productive for yourself, right? And then once you have a team, you start using that team in a, in a great way. You have a lot of support from other engineers, other data scientists. Yeah. You're not necessarily dependent on them, essentially. Yeah. And that gives you a lot more applicability in any company. Yeah. Because look, the kind of problems you're working here, they're slightly different, but then like the, the broad spectrum is very similar mm -hmm. to a, a lot of other jobs you might have in the next few years. So I think like optimizing for that end-to-endness and then focusing on some of these problems. And then as you go into senior staff more, then if you have a skill set for some of these, mm -hmm. then I think like that's the nice T-shape. Right? <laughs> I was already thinking like, about that yeah. uh, typical consultant term, T-shape. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah but... exactly. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm not proud of using that word, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's exactly where, where I ended up. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. No, I think that's a, that's a really great advice. I guess it facilitates another point and that is actually also communication because if you have really done certain things yourself in the past, then it's far more easier to also communicate and collaborate with data engineers, with ML engineers that have also at some certain degree focus. So maybe there might be the Kubernetes or Docker expert that you can deal yeah. with in a much better, more productive way if you have done that stuff to a certain degree yourself and not only always said, okay, this is somehow engineering related, so I don't do it, but rather be open to it. Right. Of course, you can't be a specialist in all of it, but at least kind of step into these steps and, and do something end to end. Yeah, I mean, like if, I, if I'm an ML engineer, right, then I mean, literally one example, just another one minute detour. I mean, again, like three weeks ago, we realized that some of the scene post service was falling on our, on our app. But that means like, again, we have a pipeline wherein like if you've seen certain videos, we don't want to show them mm -hmm. again. Uh, for the video feed, like the metrics really went down. The problem was that the scene post Redis was already full and then it wasn't performing well. What that means is my feed on videos were showing a lot of like already seen videos, my retention engagement all dropped. <laughs> okay. As an Emily, if I'm not aware of what that pipeline looks like and what's going on there, I will be clueless about my surface, right? And I'm not as good as an ML engineer as I should mm -hmm. be, right? So you can't have a very niche, very limited view and then like assume that everything else is everybody else's yeah. headache, like end-to-end -end headache, end-to-end -end ownership, accountability, that's a lot more appreciated, right? And when you, you get a bigger charter if you're able to do that in a wider and wider mm -hmm. spectrum. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what my expectation from the staff engineers in my team are, that, hey, you have slight, this horizon of headache, how can I make you deliver a wider horizon so that you can also kind of grow in your personal trajectory? Thanks for the great advice. And uh, I think that will definitely be something that uh, people can resonate about. As one of the other questions uh, that I don't want to uh, let you go away without having uh, asked is thinking about the recent guests, thinking about future guests, what might be the person that you want to have in this podcast? 
So, yeah, I mean, for the future guests, right? I mean, right now, if I look at the podcast, then we're still in the early double digit numbers for mm-hmm. the number of episodes. I'm waiting for the day when you hit the early triple digits. Oh. <laughs> uh, a lot of like, very, very exciting podcast uh, guests to be had on the platform. Uh, but just biased from my personal current set of problems, mm-hmm. right? I would love to kind of hear some people talk about the ML infra needed for making recommendations work at mm-hmm. scale. Like, I mean, like looking at TPU embeddings, looking at dynamic, uh, I mean, like the Merlin architectures, all of those, right? So what does it take from the deployment aspect of ML engineering needed to make recommendations work? So again, like there's a huge list of like potential podcast episodes I would love to kind of hear on your podcast. But then like, I think like more immediately if somebody is on the ML infra side uh, to make Rexis work, I think that would be like very, very good because you've already had like a pretty decent diverse coverage in terms of puzzle impact in terms of like uh, re- revenue retention modeling short term yeah and we had that episode with uh, even aldrich actually from nvidia right. I, i'm not sure whether i can go, just uh, go and let you off with that answer even though it's uh, totally legitimate in terms of the topic but uh, if you right. would just uh, impose a random uniform distribution over the people which tailors more to the fairness who would that be so is that like a specific person or a topic you would rather prefer the answer on a specific person. So, if, for for example, if you would uh, constrain it to the uh, ML infra space, so in terms of recommendations, who would be the person that you would like to me to invite? If you allow me to change the topic entirely, right? Then, like, I, th- I think like I would love to hear Sean Taylor talk about a lot of like yeah. uh, things coming together. Uh, not on the ML infra side, definitely, but on the on the causal impact, on the interventions, on the marketplace, uh-huh. on the supply side experimentation. So, there's, I mean, like, I, I think some of the work he's done at Facebook or also recently and Lyft is a combination of causal impact, but also like causal understanding for intervention design in a marketplace mm-hmm. setup, which is a combination of three topics, right? You've had Olivier talk about causal yeah. impact. I'm hopefully I'm slightly talking about marketplace, <laughs> but then like the intersection of it all together, right? Especially on the experimentation setup mm-hmm. as well, which is like understanding causal impact of your decisions, using them to make an intervention, mm-hmm. And then having the right experimentation setup to prove the value of it. I think the work which I think like he has done at Lyft is like is phenomenal. Cool. And I think like that's one topic which does, touches upon like three different domains and he's like uniquely positioned to, I mean, talk about this in, at the industry scale. So, I mean, if he's talking about it, I would love to. Uh, just <laughs> okay, cool. Then I will do my best and uh, put him on my list and uh, also reach out to him. Yeah, and uh, thanks for hoping for the three digit numbers somewhere. I definitely agree that there is still plenty of space for many more topics to come in the future. Yeah, I definitely really, really appreciate that you, uh, for this episode, uh, contributed with all your knowledge, your experience that you bring to the table, and also some more insights about what is going on at Spotify and what is going on now at ShareChat. And I guess for ShareChat, we will also be hearing more maybe in spring, Q1, Q2, because you have already announced that ShareChat is going to host the upcoming Rexus chat. Maybe just for the end, as a short teaser, can you already uh, shed some light onto what we are going to expect there? Yes, I mean, definitely. I think like one of the aspects I love about like joining ShareChat was the friendliness with the academic community. We've already released a bunch of data sets even prior to me joining Mm -hmm. sponsored Rexis last year, as you you mentioned earlier. Uh, One of the things we are doing is like hosting the Rexis Cup for uh, Rexis 2023. Mm And uh, I mean, that, that's going to be about little like interactions, information on social media data, a lot of like athletic behavior on, on our platform uh, and how users kind of can look at social media 
user interactions on that and uh, kind of make some nice predictions and really solve like an industrial scale problem with the, with the data set we share. So very excited about like the collaboration with Drexis this year on that. And again, it takes a nightmare to kind of release some of these data sets <laughs> because of the legal you have to go through. We've done that at Spotify. Uh, we've done that a few yeah. times with ShareChat. And I think, again, like, I feel very proud of the of the public interactions which we are having as a, as a I, I, we have a lot of like great relationship with like universities and academics mm-hmm. in general. We're going to plan on doubling down on this this year with one like Rexis Cup being one of mm-hmm. them. So hopefully we can kind of use a lot of the work and do like, like two-way transfer of knowledge between industry and academia. Uh, with just like ShareChat being the facilitator on some of this. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Then we can be pretty excited about uh, when you're going to release it. Reshap, it was really a wonderful experience. And uh, I, again, learned so much because you were responsible for filling up my reading list of Rex's paper to quite some extent. And uh, this time again, it was really enlightening. And I hope it will also be for the listeners. So thank you for attending and sharing. Thanks, Master, so much. I think I love the conversation. I mean, time flew by, by uh, yeah, without even us noticing. Uh, thanks for the great questions. Love the podcast. And we'll look forward to hear about a lot of the upcoming uh, guests here on your podcast. Thank you. So have a wonderful rest of the day. Uh, I mean, here it's already dark. I guess in London it will also be dark soon since we are not so far Yeah, I apart. think I just have like 20 minutes of, 20 minutes of like uh, slight light before it starts getting dark. <laughs> it's been a long chat to almost two and a half hours. Great. So thanks for the amazing questions. Cool. Then thank you. And as I said, have a nice rest of the day and a nice week. Bye. Perfect. Thanks so much. See you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Rexperts, Recommender Systems Experts, the podcast that brings you the experts in recommender systems. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe to it on your favorite podcast player and please share it with anybody you think might benefit from it. Please also leave a review on Podchaser. And last but not least, if you have questions, a recommendation for an interesting expert you want to have in my show, or any other suggestions, drop me a message on Twitter or send me an email to marcel at rexperts.com. Thank you again for listening and sharing and make sure not to miss the next episode because people who listen to this also listen to the next episode. See you. Goodbye.